Hello and welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. Today I'm speaking with Brent Cooper. Brent is the founder and director of the Abstract Org, a metamodern think tank. Before we get into the conversation, I want to just say, all my interviews are little experiments in conversation, as many of you know. But this one in particular, I think, serves as a good example of how two people with profound disagreements can nonetheless come together and make their points heard by the other without resorting to accusations and finger-pointing, bad faith argumentation, or emotional reactivity. There's a lot of talk these days about the sense-making crises and reaching across partisan lines to try to make sense of one another, and despite our differences, I think Brent and I did as good a job as any at demonstrating how this is done in practice. I want to thank Brent for being willing to come on and make the case for his point of view. I hope to have many constructive disagreements with guests of all types going forward into the future. Agora Politics is about upgrading our outdated theories of politics. To do so, we need to be willing to have challenging conversations that not only push us to our intellectual limits, but to our interpersonal and ideological limits as well. None of us are born with a worldview out of whole cloth. It is shaped by our disposition, upbringing, and experiences. What we mustn't forget, however, is that the choices we make will influence our perspectives now, in the future, and how we interpret our past. Without further ado, I give you Brent Cooper. Hello and welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. With me today is Brent Cooper. Brent Cooper is the founder and director of the Abstract Organization, a metamodern think tank committed to definitively solving the world's systemic social problems through a high-level framework of abstraction. Brent, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's really good to have you on. And, uh, you know, we're going to get into the main topic today, uh, which is uh, related to an interaction that you and I uh, had over Twitter, uh, which is sort of uh, surrounding um, critical race theory, uh, critical race studies and uh, related scholarship uh, more generally. But before we do that, I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, who you are and what what you're doing with the abstract organizations, you know, how you self-conceptualize uh, the project that you're doing with the think tank. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. I, I like your introduction. I know you're just reading from my descriptions, but it's always helpful for me to kind of, um, you know, build, build it off that because, because it's, it's an evolving project and it's difficult to describe, but, um, in the simplest sense, I, I call it the abstract organization because there's a need in the think tank world. There's a void of kind of good uh, think tank work. And a lot of research has been done about that. <clears throat> and the concept of abstraction um, is, is, uh, is something that informs and kind of structures all of our thought and to an extent, social behavior and, and uh, economics. And so, you know, a lot of philosophy does explicitly dive into abstraction, you know, uh, you can just sort of, you know, cast, cast a, cast a line out there and, and catch a philosopher using the term, right? So on, you know, whether it's like big, big shots like Hegel or Marx. 
it's just a, it's a through line. And in my research, I found that, of course, a lot of these different thinkers are using the term different. Um, there's always something uh, gener generally common that it points to. And we're all abstracting and part of formal education um, in the best sense is, is learning the explicit forms of ab abstraction because I think it's implicit in most of our teaching. So to learn what's actually happening, you know, how we, how we formalize concepts, how they, how they have salience, uh, you know, how psychology works, abstraction is a big top level kind of mediating framework. And, and I'm still, you know, researching it. it it's a constant process because it's a very, you know, big um, <clears throat> kind of terrain where you find this, this concept, artificial intelligence, you know, music theory, uh, art, of course. So uh, that, that is where, where I begin. And also the abstract organization is partly satirical, partly what's called pataphysical. You know, that's kind of a satirical take on metaphysics where you're, you're basically trying to uh, come up with um, imaginary solutions to the world's problems. <clears throat> Uh, so, so yeah, my background is sort of a sociologist by training, and that's that's the kind of framework I continue to use, my orienting principles, because I want uh, more people to have a sociological imagination. And I try to foster um, the concept of public public sociology, which think tanks and media organizations are supposed to do. And so naturally that goes into a lot of these hot button topics and culture war issues because they, they like the discourse breaks down literally over definitions, right? right? So if we were able to just come to some common definitions, it would dispel a lot of the tension and, and talking past one another. Yeah, well, I certainly agree with that. And uh, abstraction as a, as an idea or as a principle or a method uh, is really, uh, in my view, about you know reduction of information, right? There's only so much that a human being can process at one time. And so abstraction helps us not only connect different uh, disparate ideas to one another, disparate concepts that have something in common, but it also allows us to uh, zero in on that which is most important and get rid of a lot of the extraneous things. In some ways, it's very much related to compression, uh, which people... Yeah. Uh, some people give compression as sort of a one word definition of intelligence in many ways. Um, so uh, anyway, that's just sort of a. Yeah, that, that's on point. And I like the term distillation, too. Mm -hmm. if, if you look at the abstraction uh, wiki article, uh, compression is part of it. I think that's a really interesting concept. But also distillation, I think, is is very salient for me because, you know, you know, at a basic level, yes, we're trying to identify the essential features that make up a concept, right? So like, what is a chair? What is a table, right? These are the kind of intro to philosophy kind of objects that you work with, right? But then when we get to the higher levels, like what is democracy? What is liberalism, right? These are very leaky abstractions. What is socialism for that matter, right? Because mm -hmm. this is a movement that I identify with and, and try to uh, support and advance. <clears throat> So, you know, when we, when, when we get to distillation, it's not just about, you know, simplifying the code, but how do we, how do we like address the anomalies? How do we address the objections? Uh, how do we distill the essence? And, and then who's the audience who's listening, right? So these are, these are 
very problematic factors that um, because the problems of society are overdetermined, like racism is overdetermined. So then the solutions are always falling short, right? Even the diagnoses, this is part of what we're, what, what we're at odds about. So yeah, abstraction is at the heart of it. And, and it's rarely something that people talk about explicitly. And I think they rarely, people, you know, um, uh, with respect to the intellectual dark web, as I mentioned to you before we started, I just don't uh, buy the kind of branding statement that they, that they operate with, that they're, that they're a good faith, you know, civil driven uh, conversation oriented rationalist community. I don't think that holds up in the context of their critiques against the left, because, you know, I don't see the leftist project as anti any of that uh, enlightenment stuff per se. Okay. Well, uh, so you're jumping right into it. I see here. Um, <laughs> didn't, I didn't mean to, but no, no, you know, no, it, it's we'll totally fine. And out. So I was going to ask you, well, so uh, let's just address a few points that you made there real quick. Um, and I, you know, to be honest, I don't, um, I don't really care to focus too much on the IDW these days. Um, mm -hmm. I used to be much more closely um, associated with them. And uh, I've had some people on the show who are, you know, have even claimed to be part of uh, part of the IDW or the what's called the IDW diaspora, which are sort of like the, you know, the people who don't get featured in the New York Times article. Right, right. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I, I have my own um, critiques of them as well, but I, I would be interested in um, in just bringing up one kind of point of um, of uh, contention or, or, or sort of wrinkle in that that I that I was hoping you, you, you might want to want to deal with, which is that many of the members of the IDW, and in fact, arguably most of the members of the IDW would uh, identify with the left currently, um, or at least they did in particular when the IDW started, people like Eric and Brett Weinstein, Sam Harris, uh, Heather Hying, uh, these are all leftists or uh, self-proclaimed progressives. Uh, and so um, it's interesting to me that you say that because their critique of the left is is coming ostensibly from a leftist position uh, in most of those cases. Uh, you know, uh, Joe Rogan is more like an apolitical kind of actor. And, you know, Ben Shapiro is obviously very right wing and Jordan Peterson right, right. himself is, is pretty right, uh, even though he sort of tries to stay away from that label. Um, so how do you square what you just said about the IDW with the fact that many of them are leftists? Yeah. Um... Oh, thanks for asking. And I like the way you, you framed it, you know, and you gave context there that um, there are right wingers. Um, the, so the way it's been critiqued from the left broadly, uh, and I'll, you know, I'll make reference to Michael Brooks's critiques because he synthesized a lot of other critiques, but there's, there's hundreds of critiques from people who are still on the left, right? So when, when Brett and Eric say they, you know, they left the left or they, you know, they, they're, they voted for Bernie in 2016. I mean, I registered that as fact, right? They, 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 they did. Um, <clears throat> so I'm not trying to hand wave away any of that, but uh, by and large, it's a right wing movement, even though you have these ostensibly left characters like Brett and Eric, and it's because of what their actual politics has become and what their engagements are. So Eric, for example, you know, he works for Peter Thiel who is a capitalist Republican. So um, there's a bit of a, a conflict of interest there, I would say. And, and also, you know, the, the IDW 
um, actors and also the, the di diaspora, as you mentioned, and people like Dave Rubin, you know, dramatically he left the left, right? He made a big, a big stink about it. <clears throat> the way I contextualize all this is to say that, um, well, most of the lefties who are critiquing the intellectual dark web, and there's, we could just say broadly, there's hundreds of YouTubers, but, you know, I like to, I like to, um, put Michael Brooks at the top of that because he had quite a successful show. He would constantly reference a lot of these actors and was open to engagement, but there was never any crosstalk and there was really never any even awareness, right? Like almost as if they're afraid to mention each other's names. And one example I'll give is I watched Sam Harris on the portal with Eric and mm -hmm. Sam Cedar came up, right? So, so Sam Cedar is a pretty, decent, I think, uh, mainstream liberal leftist. And uh, Eric said that they talked once privately, but not had a public conversation. And Sam used that as an opportunity to pivot to just shitting on Majority Report and Sam Cedar. And he literally prefaced his and he never watched any of the content. So, so the thing is, when, when Sam Cedar or Michael Brooks uh, consume IDW content and they go after specific actors like Peterson or Ben Shapiro, there's a good faith kind of grappling with the content they put out, the context. And then when you go the other way, you know, somebody like Ben Shapiro, he'll just always pick easy targets. He'll never debate or confront with a serious leftist because that's not, that's not the game. So, um, so yeah, I would, I, just to get back to the central point, I would frame the, the broad shift to the right <clears throat> because as we agree, there's a lot of actors that uh, claim some bona fides to the left project, but are explicitly distancing themselves, aligning with tons of right-wing actors, you know, Fox News, Candace Owens, et cetera, um, Prager, doing PragerU videos, like this is a really far cross, uh, crossing the divide kind of action. Um, and so, so the, the many people who kind of remain staunch leftists have criticized them on an ongoing basis. And because the, the conversation never happened, so to speak, it, it then transitions into these other issues and these new actors emerging where you have like James Lindsay and Christopher Rufo being more prominent, putting out a lot of content, being relatively aggressive online, um, really just rejecting critics wholesale, not, not uh, entertaining the possibility that they could be wrong. And so it, it definitely speaks to a broader systemic problem where most people, I'm not, I'm not making a partisan point here, but most people are overly sensitive to criticism. And, uh, you know, it needs to be like solicited. It needs to be heard and kind of like you and I are doing, I hope we can like constructively disagree, you know, because we'll, we'll run up against points that we're passionate about. And, and one of the key things I want to kind of express to you and to listeners is like, we need to create a space where we can trust each other enough to like, if it's appropriate to like call each other an, an idiot or something, you know, you're being an idiot or like just to, 
create the space and the, the breadth and the depth and the length for conversations and for, for coursework and for uh, book clubs and, and whatever it, whatever's necessary to really um, build those, build those bridges. But at the same time, like I'll just quickly insert here uh, more of the problematic that I'm describing. You have leftists like Glenn, uh, <clears throat> Glenn Greenwald, you know, he's, he's uh, for a long time been a kind of staple of the left. You know, he co-founded The Intercept and broke the um, Edward Snowden story. And this is really important stuff for everybody, not just for the left project. And, you know, Snowden was a Republican in the past. So, so I admire that work and that, those kind of uh, disclosures and revelations. But a lot of people are criticizing Greenwald and many others, like Matt Taibbi, for also um, <clears throat> giving in to the anti-woke pressure and sort of shifting with the, um, you know, the political moment to uh, make right-wing alliances. And people are calling it a red-brown alliance. So if Tucker Carlson goes on Fox News, it's not just the act of going on Fox News, it's that he's going on there and not disagreeing sufficiently or not um, foregrounding some of the contradictions of- You mean, you mean Glenn Greenwald goes on Tucker Carlson? I yeah. think you said Tucker Carlson goes on Fox News. Oh, did, oh, did, did I say yeah. that? Sorry. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's what I'm talking about. So I just wanted to extend you know, the, the, the critique um, of the trend of this kind of drift rightward it's really affecting a lot of people. It's not just the IDW and it needs to be unpacked. And, and, you know, we'll all notice that there's very few points of potential intervention. Like, like uh, Glenn Greenwald is very defensive and very sassy on Twitter, right? When he gets critiqued, it's like, how dare you kind of thing. And, uh, and the fact remains like, we're all making mistakes all the time. Um, and part of my project is always looking at meta problems and the kind of meta analysis and meta narratives and looking for the critical points of intervention, which is why going back to 2016 um, and the Bernie movement was surging and kind of uh, bringing this new discourse to a national stage. Not only, to, it, not only was it obvious to me that it was the most kind of universalist path forward for, for many people, like many Trump voters would vote for Bernie, but that <clears throat> it was, you know, the, 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 the hostility and polarization of American politics is such that it was also predictable that that movement was going to be derailed if we mm -hmm. didn't sort of, sort of put all, all, our, all our eggs into the basket so to speak. And so, you know, the, the noise created by the IDW, I don't think uh, moved us forward in any substantive way. It, you know, allowed a lot of people to kind of express themselves and you have kind of really identity politics um, across the political spectrum, right? So the critiques against the left identity politics um, and ag against the concept of identity politics in general from from right wingers is in fact its own type of coded white identity politics and from a sort of sociology or political science perspective this is well documented right 
and and uh, maybe the last point I'll I'll, I'll make, just because I'm running out of steam and uh, you know got to have a conversation, is that when it comes to CRT, critical race theory, um, it's it's all um, blown out of proportion because people are targeting that specific thing as left identity politics when there's an ongoing denial about the right white identity politics. So it's just, it's just, um, uh, <clears throat> you know, it's just a kind of uh, real mixed bag and real kind of exp explosive kind of uh, uh, context for discourse, if that makes sense. All right. So I have many things that we can go off of from there. Um, uh, I want to start, uh, with some holes or some apparent contradictions that I found in some of the things you just said. Uh, first off, I want to abstract away <laughs> from some of the particular examples of the people that we've mentioned or that you mentioned, uh, people like, uh, uh, Glenn Greenwald and the IDW folks and, uh, you know, all, all of these sort of similar, uh, people that anyone who's sort of on Twitter, kind of knows about, but I think maybe a lot of people who aren't on Twitter aren't necessarily as tuned into who these particular names are and how exactly they all relate to one another. Um, to first uh, go to the broader point you talked about, which is that you see this, you see this problem with, with, um, with leftists, or in some cases, former leftists, moving more rightward, right? And, and, and being more associated with the right, embracing uh, more right-wing ideas or spending most of their time and energy critiquing the left rather than pushing back against the right. Uh, and as a, you know, I have to grant that, you know, you identify as a leftist. And so for you, this is obviously seen as a, as a problem. Um, but at the same time, you also said that what you want is you want to have more uh, more conversations like this one, where two individuals can come together and uh, facilitate a, a reasonable conversation with one another, where we share each other's views and we're not spending all of our time attacking each other or defending each other or trying to dunk on one another, uh, you know, for for clout or whatever. Um, and so, on the one hand, I'm seeing you being upset that many of the people who are on the left or would formerly associate with the left are engaging with the right. And on the other hand, I'm seeing you saying that you actually want to have more cross across the aisle conversations. Um, and so I wanted to ask you, you know, are you opposed to a leftist like Brett Weinstein going on Tucker Carlson, for example, um, you know, on the principle that it's Tucker Carlson or do you believe that there is a, a necessity uh, to actually engage with uh, with certain critics of the right, it doesn't necessarily need to be Tucker Carlson himself, um, in order to to move that uh, to, to 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 move these conversations forward. I want you to clear that up for me because it makes it sound like uh, you're doing kind of a you're split between a sort of kind of guilt by association, uh, while at the same time saying that you want to have more cross crosstalk. So uh, yeah, where do you stand on that? Yeah, I think I can unpack that in a number of ways. And um, I'll have to make reference to some other people and anecdotes. And, and hopefully that's it's not too alienating for people. But like just to start off with Fox News, like Cornell West goes on Fox News mm -hmm. and Bernie Sanders goes on Fox News. So, you know, that's OK in itself. I am making the, the claim that <clears throat> people like Greenwald and, and Brett Weinstein 
actually don't even know what they're getting themselves into. Like they don't know how much they're, however, however you want to describe it, you know, carrying, carrying water or providing coverage for really far right extremist ideas. I don't think they're aware. And so when they get criticized for doing so, they're like, well, I'm not doing that. And, you know, I'm against the far right. And it, 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 um, it fuels the confusion. It fuels the denial. Um, and I'm not necessarily saying I can do better either because I've, in my own videos, I've challenged uh, a couple people who I disagree with, Alexander Bard and Greg Henriquez, just to name a couple. And it's very difficult, right? And that's why I'm being candid with you that I'm looking for breakthrough opportunities, right? The, the more conceptual ground we cover, the more you know, his, his historicity and historical context we, we deploy, the better chance we have, right? And so, uh, so that those are the Fox News examples and I'll also pivot to more of my, my personal examples. I had a quote unquote anti-debate with Jordan Hall three mm. months ago, right? Hosted at the STOA. And there was a number of things wrong just with the setup of that, right? It was behind a paywall for quote unquote quality control. It was very poorly um, managed and, and, and curated by Peter. And Jordan Hall himself was incredibly late and incredibly unprepared. And this is at odds with both of their kind of stated principles and mantras about their project and about their crosstalk. And I have many, many critiques of Jordan Hall, but the top line point that I started off with was like, well, you, you had a fascist on your channel two months prior, right? It's like, how do you parse not only talking to the fascist, but, but the, the conversation itself was quite damning, I think, because there wasn't any real depth and there wasn't any pushback. It was just sort of like, hey, we're two friends just hanging out. And, and that's, you know, that's the dialogos in, in um, Jordan Hall's mind. And so I was kind of just posing the contradiction, like, well, how can you like get attracted to these guys in the first place and indulge them and give them your time and then literally like push away and block, you know, leftist, socialist, Marxist, whoever it may be, who's criticizing Hall about his um, pro Peterson stance or his, you know, his blue church theory. How do you, you know, how does he reconcile that? And he didn't, he doesn't have an answer, right? And so, um, so again, I'm, I wasn't against, you know, talking to fascists, but when you, you know, there's gotta be a way to break through. There's gotta be a way to, um, you know, uh, activate some sort of conversion in each other that accomplishes something, not just kind of, um, you know, boosts their signal or, or, um, or uh, you know, subdues tensions or whatever it may be. So, uh, and that's what I'm striving for. You know, like the, the fascist in question is uh, Brandon Hayes from the Propertarian Institute. And I said to Jordan, like, I would talk to him, but he's blocked me, right? So the reason he's blocked me is because these people aren't good faith and they can't take criticism. And it's, it's, it's tricky, right? So I'll take, I'll take as much uh, blame as people want to give me up to a point, right? Up to a point, like, oh, I was mean to him. So he, you know, he blocked me. But uh, this is what I'm getting at. It's like, <clears throat> you know, just other examples are Ben Shapiro and Ezra Klein, 
that was a really disappointing exchange between the two of them. Ben Shapiro and uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson was a little bit better, right? I watched a clip of that recently and, and Neil deGrasse Tyson is like, you know, very, very respectfully, very calmly, like Ben, you know, like, you know, that the whole trans issue is like, why does it concern you? <laughs> you know, and that's really interesting because Ben Shapiro doesn't really have a, a concrete answer. You know, he, he'll have answers. He'll have like, uh, he'll be able to, you know, gish gallop and, and spitball different defenses of why trans people are dangerous in his view. But at the end of the day, Neil deGrasse Tyson made an excellent point. However, it's still like, you know, the, the question of what, what is the result? Is, was a change affected in Ben? Uh, could Tyson have done better? Like, you know, so I, I get real impatient with just the whole kind of um, performance of it all, going through the motions and, and uh, the limits of good faith engagement or, you know, so-called good faith engagements. Um, and so when it comes back to like uh, what my foundations are, you know, <clears throat> my own identity, my own passions aside, my foundations are uh, interdisciplinary, you know, international relations, political sociology. And, and through that work um, and, and, you know, uh, mixing it with, with media studies, with kind of um, mass society theories, elite theories, and, and the fact that we're, we really seem locked in to a meta crisis, right? Climate change and social strife and hyper wealth inequality. Uh, obviously we, we have to talk to each other. We have to teach each other, but I'm, I'm always pushing for some sort of substantive shift. And at the end of the day, only you can decide, first of all, whether or not that happens at all. And second of all, like to what degree it happens, you know, mm -hmm. like, like what, what, uh, and, and this is where I want to ask hypotheticals and prime yourself and the audience, even if it's just um, to plant a seed, right? I don't need a concrete answer, but like, you know, what, what are the limits or what would it take to shift on this policy or what kind of policies are off limits and which ones are you curious about? Because in my view, they're all connected. All social issues are, are deeply inter, you know, intertwined and overdetermined. And, and I think the best solutions aren't going to be the piecemeal change that's currently happening, especially pushed by the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. uh, we need some radical change, like the, the, the left movement uh, proposed in the last two elections. However, it needs to also like literally actually win hearts and minds not be this um divisive thing like oh is is you know will socialism work is it you know or, or you know all the scaremongering around that concept you know what what does it really mean and so a lot of the discourse becomes a distraction from discussing some of the central points right so one thing i yeah. disagreed with jim Rowe on so, so I want to get green, in, just, I, just quickly, I get just, into some of the central points. Yeah, just really maybe, quickly, the, the Green ahead. New Deal, right? The Green New Deal, mm -hmm. if, if it was something that people in good faith from different parts of the political spectrum could uh, come together in a kind of roundtable or a classroom and 
learn about and agree on, they might adopt it, right? But in, in the case of uh, Jim Rutt, his agreement was just, well, well, we can't afford it, you know, like, oh, this crazy Marxist. And it's like, well, actually, you know, now we're just, these are just thought terminating cliches. You do a good impression. <laughs> Thanks. He, he's an easy one. <laughs> but go ahead. Well, so again, uh, I want to get away from some of the discourse. I know that in some ways our topic for today is kind of a meta discussion about the discourse, but I do want to start getting into some of these concrete issues because in our conversation that we had, uh, which people can go search us on Twitter if they want to find it, um, uh, you, you know, presented your own, you know, based on your own experience and background, which you've talked about already, uh, that, that you uh, have some critiques of, of the current discourse. And I want to get into those specifically. So for, to, to, to begin with, <clears throat> I want to just go ahead and uh, in real time with you here, because I have you resolve, um, I guess, a, a misunderstanding or an accusation that was levied my way, uh, which was that in our interaction that I was simply parroting some of the ideas uh, from Christopher Rufo. Now, um, I will just state outright that I wasn't. Uh, I don't view myself as, as doing so. In fact, uh, I was talking about some of these issues, maybe not, uh, not as, uh, as boisterous as some of the people are doing it now, but uh, I was talking about these issues, issues surrounding intersectionality, inter issues that I had with, uh, with critical theory more generally, with critical race theory specifically, even decolonialism, all these related uh, research areas. Uh, I, I, I've been outspoken about them since at least 2016, uh, before Rufo was on the scene, uh, even as James, Lind you know, I watched James Lindsay come up. Uh, I know, I know, for example, that his background is actually he came from the, the new atheist movement and then sort of converted mm -hmm. into sort of an anti-woke, uh, you know, a, a pundit of sorts. And, you know, to be uh, clear to my audience and for James, if you happen to ever listen to this, I don't think he would. But uh, I've had James on the show in the past. I've also had Benjamin Boyce on the show in the past, uh, both of whom are uh, very large uh, sort of anti-woke personalities. They, they both sort of brand, built their brand around um, kind of countering wokeness, uh, you know, Benjamin on, on YouTube and, uh, and uh, you know, sorry, James with his new discourses and on Twitter mostly. Um, and so part of the reason I wanted to have you on the show in the first place is because I actually haven't been able to find uh, a genuine... Uh, a genuine proponent of these ideas who is willing to come on. You know, when you say, when mm -hmm. you say, uh, you know, um, you know, they never invite, uh, you know, leftists on, on, on the IDW shows or, or what it, whatever it may be. The message that I hear from them is that a lot of the leftists won't come on. You know, I I've sent a, I've sent emails out to Ibram Kendi. He never responded. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, and of course he's a big guy. So, so maybe he has other reasons for not right. wanting to spend time with me. That being said, um, it is, in my experience, rather hard to get, uh, in particular, leftists uh, who disagree with you, to to come on and actually have the discussion. Because in many uh, in many instances, they just assume that uh, if you're right wing at all, or you're um, you know kind of right leaning or have right right wing sympathies, whatever, however you want to characterize it, uh, that you sort of believe in evil ideas and that you're not worth um, you know talking to, or, or maybe they assume that if they do come on, you're just going to try to like harass them and make fun of them or something. Uh, you know, I don't know what it is, but I do know that in my experience, whenever I invite leftists on the show, uh, the response I get is almost, you know, it's, it's almost never none at all or anything at all. Um, you know, usually mm -hmm. they just ignore it. Uh, in fact, I haven't had a, a leftist say, you know, I'm not coming on 
because I disagree with you politically. Um, mostly they just never respond. So uh, that I think is a, a problem right there in itself, which is that you, you have to have people that are willing to cross the aisle. Now you brought up people like Cornell West uh, and some others. I, I think Cornell West would be the most prominent example of a leftist who uh, you know, is very grounded in his sort of Marxist tradition and is very clear, you know, it's lifelong, you know, leftist scholar and activist. And yet he continues to come on, uh, you know, very decidedly right wing shows. You know, I've seen Cornell West go on Gavin McInnes's show. I've seen Cornell West oh, okay. yeah. uh, talk with Peter Thiel at Harvard, um, right. you know, invited Peter Thiel into his classroom to have a discussion. So he's very much someone who is willing to reach across the aisle and is not afraid at all of, you know, having the conversation, even with people that are totally opposed to him. Um, and this has gone a little bit off track here, but I was going to tell you a little bit about my, my background. So the people who are listening may not know entirely what my academic background is, but I went to the James Madison School at Michigan State University, which is a liberal arts uh, school of public policy and government inside of the university. Um, and my major is in political theory or political philosophy. Uh, and so that's my primary academic background. But one of the interesting things about the James Madison program is that it has sort of four majors within it, which are uh, social relations and policy, which is more like a, you know, a, I mean, it's basically what it sounds like. And then uh, a comparative cultures and politics, which is sort of a comparative cultural analysis. And then it also has international relations uh, as well. And so one of the interesting things about the Madison program is that during your first year, you're actually undeclared and you expend the first year uh, getting into all of those subfields and getting experience with all of them before you have the uh, the option to to choose your sort of major or concentration. And so because of that program, I, I had the, the, the privilege of being introduced to a lot of these ideas in sociology, in uh, you know, various kinds of cultural theories, et cetera, that maybe a lot of people who come from my kind of academic pedigree haven't really experienced at all necessarily because they haven't really engaged in them. Uh, and in particular, I want to bring up one course uh, which is MC 111, which is sort of a uh, the first kind of uh, major writing course that you take when you're enrolled in the Madison program. And the MC 111 course is a course called literally identity and community. And so what that means is that the entire course is focused on uh, these various, you know, very sociological concepts, which is identity and community. And uh, in particular, the course that I took was taught by a professor who uh, was both in the social relations and policy department and in the comparative cultures and politics department. And so there was a heavy focus on, uh, you know, what we would call critical, uh, critical race studies, critical race theory, um, various aspects of, um, of, you know, anti-racism and uh, dealing with concepts of privilege and, and so on and so forth. And so I got very enmeshed in this in particular in my first year of schooling, <clears throat> you know, we studied, uh, we studied Frederick Douglass. We studied uh, W.E.B. Du Bois. We went all the way up through, uh, you know, kind of the tradition uh, leading up to sort of the present scholars that people like to bring up. People like uh, like Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw and others who are more associated with kind of the, the, the contemporary instantiations of that ideological lineage um, that people are arguing about right now online. And so all this is to say is, is to give you a preface and to give you some context for where I'm coming from, um, both to dispel the notion that I'm sort of just blindly repeating things, right, but also, right. but but also, but also to to say that um, one of the things that's interesting about political philosophers is it's 
distinct from other fields of philosophy in that other fields of philosophy, like if you're an analytical philosopher or you're dealing with aesthetics or you're dealing with metaphysics or whatever it may be, you don't necessarily have to um, totally acquaint yourself with uh, the body of work in its sort of sequential order in order to understand uh, your particular subfield. Now, obviously, all philosophers have to be aware of sort of the foundational ideas and and, 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 and big names or whatever who, who may have came before and then are forming whatever their particular subfield is currently. But in political philosophy in particular, we have a really intense focus on the origin and genealogy of ideas. And so we look at how ideas started and how they transformed over time. And so because of that, this almost um, philological uh, understanding is sort of how I approach uh, the interpretation and the discussion around many ideas. And so my first major question for you that's related to the main topic, which is going to be this discourse around critical theories, <clears throat> is what you view as the distinction between critical race studies and critical race theories. Because a lot of the opposition or, or the, claim that, the claim that the opponents of critical race theory are using it as a... Uh, as a stand-in for something else, or they're using it uh, in, in, in a completely wrong way, uh, kind of rests on this distinction that was drawn out in, uh, in at least in the article that you shared with me, uh, which is posted in the Boston Review written by uh, David Goldberg called The War on Critical Race Theory. So my understanding comes from the perspective of, well, I can see how these ideas uh, trace back to one another, connect back to one another through various citations and references, and they evolve over time. And so obviously the critical race theory that we have at the moment is, is not the same thing as sort of the, the history of critical race studies or decolonialism or even African-American studies, whatever kind of subfield you want to bring it into. You know, it's, it's not going to be the same animal that arises, let's say, in schools of education, right, for example, which is sort of like the more contemporary manifestations that people are claiming are CRT. Um, and so can you just delineate for me what you view as the distinction there? And uh, we can go from there. Yeah, cool. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff there you said that I want to that I want to get through. So so I, I took I took a little bit of notes, but I'll start at the end and try to work backwards. So yeah, obviously, CRT and critical race studies or or critical legal studies for that matter, certainly they all overlap like a Venn diagram. Um, and yeah, I, I probably couldn't speak to, to the, the nuanced differences right in this moment, but um, <clears throat> like one thing that popped in my head is like, you know, CRT being a kind of placeholder or straw man for DEI, right? Diversity, equity, and inclusivity or, or inclusion so you know going back to the the um launch of the idw or perhaps further you know pick your pick your straw man or your or your or your talking point these things come under scrutiny from right wingers broadly and that that has a sort of salience for people and i mean that's how a lot of propaganda works I think right-wing propaganda is much more effective than left-wing propaganda, especially in today's climate. So then we have this kind of bandwagon effect where it prompts people to write things like the Boston Review article. 
and I pointed to that article specifically, and there's, there's a couple others from Boston Review. They are doing amazing work across the board. I think it's totally flying under most people's radar, but, but those articles only emerge because of what's happening in the public discourse, right? And then it kind of, uh, you know, goes through waves and peaks and lulls where, you know, I was talking with, um, uh, uh, texting with uh, Bernie Belvedere, the editor of Arc Digital, about this. And I said, like, you know, would you like me to submit a, a thing on CRT? This was like a, a month ago. But he's like, oh, it's kind of played out right now. Like we've just published two pieces, right? And and I get that. Like it's the only reason I suggest it is because I think most of the stuff published misses the point, right? And mo if you read something in the Atlantic or the New Yorker, the New York Times, like they're not even citing the Boston Review piece. They're not aware of the kind of timeline in, in which these things unfold. And it's very salient for me because um, as I've written about, critical race theory was an issue uh, early last year in game B, right? There was people, Jim Rutt um, himself was explicitly banning it. Like I wasn't necessarily coming in saying, oh, you need to read CRT and this is the, the, the framework. We need to talk like this. It's like, I was just trying to introduce any kind of sociological conceptual footing. And the people there and Jim Rutt included was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> like that's, that's just, um, that's just a kind of, you know, communist Trojan horse kind of thing. I'm like, uh, no, this is like one of the main instrumental ways academics talk about racism, systemic racism. And so, you know, you yourself admitted uh, quite a bit of literacy to the, to the background of these fields. And so I'll use, I'll use that to pivot to a point um, you, you opened this with, uh, <clears throat> with um, you know, Rufo's tweet. Uh, I replied, and then you replied, and we got into an exchange. There's a lot of people, and you're included, that actually do the homework, <laughs> right? You want to learn what it actually means and not take it from Christopher Rufo. And, and uh, I, you know, I'll, I'll admit, full disclosure, like, what prompted our exchange was just you know, Rufo's tweet. I think you retweeted it. That's why you saw my comment. But I just made a glib remark, right? Because, and I'll, I'll explain why. I'll give the context why. But I just said, like, you know, grifting must feel real good, right? And then, and then, um, you know, you took issue with that, and we went back and forth. Um, the context in which I did that is, you know, I can point to. You know, you speak of lefties being um, hard to get a hold of or, or being, um, you know, participatory. And I agree. And that's, I mean, it's tough even on the left to build alliances sometimes. And it's also hard to get uh, right wingers to talk with me. It, it's all over a problem. But um, my point is, I've seen Rufo effectively and continually debunked. Like, like so Sam Hoadley Brill. Is a, is a PhD student. And I mentioned him on Jim Rudd's podcast going back to October of last year. This mm. is a guy who I give a ton of credit to because he's daily, you know, engaging with people like Rufo and Lindsay and trying to, you know, aggressively call them out. Um, and it, um, <clears throat> he's doing good work, good written work and good podcasts. And, and 
he has debated, I forget which, which podcast it was in particular, but Sam Hoadley Brill uh, and Aaron um, from the Escape the Void podcast, they did a debate with some people. Um, so I'm just mentioning that to say that the debates do happen, but there's not been any debate between Rufo, Lindsay, and the critics, um, Sam Hoadley Brill and various people. So it, it leaves us unsatisfied. It leaves people confused. <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, yeah, another point I wanted to mention, right? So what distinguishes uh, people like Rufo and Lindsay, right? They have a lot of traction. And, and Rufo's brand is like, oh, he's just a conservative activist. That's legit, right? Oh, he works for the Manhattan Institute and, you know, is affiliated with other, with other groups. And the point I want to make is like the only difference between the Manhattan Institute and the abstract organization in terms of like legitimacy is money, right? So I admit my project is like half satire and half serious, like, like uh, academic nonfiction, activism, and so on. Whereas things like the Manhattan Institute, the Heritage Foundation, like these are dark money funded uh, denial machines in large part. <clears throat> and uh, that, what I think is a basic truth kind of gets lost in the, in the discourse, lost in the culture war. So we, you know, mainstream news continues to give voice and platform to these actors, what I think are, are bad actors, kind of IDW diaspora. Because at the end of the day, you know, systemic racism or structural racism or institutional racism, I think is very real, very verifiable. And, and all we have to do is have the kind of patience and nuance to get into the details. Um, so, and, yeah, yeah. So well, what do you think? Well, uh, so uh, let's get into some of the details then. I don't know if you actually answered my question completely okay. there, which was what is the difference that you view between critical race theory and critical race studies? I'll just say that here's my position. Uh, my position is uh, what do you call a scholar of critical race studies if not a critical race theorist? Um, yeah, so, I'd say just to briefly answer your question directly, I'd say the main difference is law. My understanding of critical race theory is that it's it's based in law, legal studies, mm -hmm. and critical race studies. If if we're talking about a department or a program, that's just much more broad <clears throat> to include fields and discipline beyond law, outside of law, or even maybe not having a focus on law. Okay, so 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 that's that's good. Uh, I I believe that that's a correct characterization there. That critical race theory is more like a subcategory of uh, of critical race studies, which is more broad and ties in you know multiple other disciplines from you know intersectional feminism to decolonialism to uh, you know some aspects of postmodernism, and that all of these ideas do get sort of uh, almost like jammed together, <laughs> so that. Uh, for, for branding purposes, really it's for branding purposes um, and for marketability and for mimetic reasons um, it, under the moniker of critical race theory. And, and in fact, the people who are doing so are very clear about that. You know, like James Lindsay and Chris Ruffo, who I think would be the biggest, uh, let's say offenders, uh, if we're going to use that term uh, here, 
uh, are very explicit about the fact that they're happy to use critical race theory because for them, it sums up all these, they can, they can sort of smash all these related ideas into one coherent concept and then just sort of spit it out at people over and over again. Uh, kind of like you're talking about. I mean, I don't think that, uh, I don't know about, I, I don't know about Chris. I think maybe he views his, his, his project as a little bit more um, uh, legislative or policy oriented, but I know that James, for example, I don't think would deny that what he's doing is propaganda. Um, and uh, right. I'm not necessarily we, opposed that. to propaganda in itself, but it is important that we acknowledge that there is a propagandistic nature to some of the discussion that's happening. And so therefore uh, there are incentives to uh, muddle the discourse or, um, or to not speak clearly about certain things. Um, that being said, uh, uh, we, we've acknowledged that critical race theory is part of a broader kind of uh, collection of scholarship. Uh, and we've acknowledged that, you know, I agree with you that it is a, you know, I mean, well, I don't have to agree with you. It is the fact. The fact of the matter is that it is, it did come out of legal studies. It did come out of um, areas related to kind of the analysis of the way in which the law informs uh, our understanding of race. And in particular, existing laws, um, you know, prior to the passage of the Civil Rights Act and various kind of laws that came afterwards that, um, you know, had uh, racial implications, things like redlining and so forth uh, that were disputed in the courts. Uh, and so it's it's not wrong to say that it is a, a kind of a niche legal theory. Um, and I think the main confusion that people are getting uh, towards right now is the fact that uh, what's happening in the popular consciousness, which is more surrounding uh, aspects like uh, like like education and pedagogy, uh, is are derivative of these ideas, and in some cases even reference directly uh, these critical race uh, theorists. <clears throat> and I'm using that in the precise meaning here. Uh, and so, when someone like you comes into a conversation and says. Uh, you know, you're misrepresenting CRT, you know, it's really this niche legal theory. Um, my first response is, well, that may be the case, but it's still also true that these sort of critical theory educators, if we can call them that, are referencing this legal framework and maybe they're misapplying it, but they're still misapplying it. Um, so how do you respond to that? Yeah, that's great. <clears throat> so, you know, the term moral panic comes to mind. Um, maybe that's not the best place to start because that's a strong claim of uh, critique, right? And I, I, I did want to make a point to your broader point, which is that, um, yeah, CRT is one of, and I kind of made this point on Twitter, but CRT is one of, let's say, hundreds of important uh, subfields of study that it just so happens to have like been put under the microscope, right? And and it's no different when feminist studies get put under the microscope or postmodernism post writ large. And that narrative, that anti-postmodernism is by and large what this is about, right? And and the, the critique of postmodernism, <clears throat> it seems very fresh to a lot of people, like it, it's it's worn out today, but the critique goes back to the 90s, right? Where you had people across the spectrum writing about the diminishing returns to increasingly derivative academic work, right? 
none of it addresses the big picture. None of it addresses the meta crisis. And this has been my obsession for the past decade. So I'm happy to be like a total proponent and defender of CRT, but also like only to say that that's not the issue. You know, the issue is that through actually, you know, a lot of the anti-woke people complain how woke universities are and how left they're controlled by leftists, right? There, there's, a, there's a very persuasive argument that the opposite is true, that, that universities are largely privatized and corporate controlled and run by bureaucrats who are either apolitical or right-leaning. <clears throat> I think Harvard's a good example. And Cornell West's uh, walking away from that situation is, is sort of case in point of like, um, you know, just, just how, how um, at, at minimum, how unclear it is, you know, who's in charge and what politics are prevailing. And so, you know, I, I think you're aware to some extent, you know, I work on something called metamodernism. And it's ironic because very, very few people have been interested, even on the left, very few people have been interested on how metamodernism answers the postmodern question or the dilemma or however you want to frame it. Because, um, <clears throat> you know, in my work, I try to demonstrate how postmodernism is not collapsible into a, a simple definition, a simple kind of uh, abstraction of what it is and what it isn't. It, it's just, it's just not reducible. It, it is, it is reducible functionally to a point, right? And what I mean by that is you'll see lots of academics uh, sort of summarizing and paraphrasing what well, they think it is as a we have, to, we have to mean something when we say postmodernism, otherwise yes. the term is meaningless. Uh, if yes. there's not some kind of coherent uh, commonality. Exactly, exactly. And so um, following that, you know, an observation I make it when I dive into any academic literature, whether it's Marxism or feminism, is that there's always debate. It's always not perfectly clear. There's always a lot of jargon. And, and by and large, a lot of academic work, as I alluded to a moment ago, is very narrow. It doesn't address the big picture. And so um, just in terms of narrative and public discourse and disclosure, um, you know, you have someone like Jordan Peterson come along sort of out of nowhere and really amplify this latent kind of anti-left, anti-postmodern zeitgeist. And then that, that kind of dictates the shape of the discourse for the next uh, three, four years. And, and my, my lamentation, lamentation is just that, um, you know, first of all, the conservatives are kind of building a straw man. They're not, they're, they're also very aggressive, very just sort of authoritative and pompous about it, like demonizing, you know, red scare McCarthyite kind of tactics just around these, these, con these concepts without the historical context too, without, without the historicizing uh, struggle, you know, class struggle and identity struggle. And without definitely without historicizing the discourse itself, which which as my work tries to reveal, you know, you have the waning waning of postmodernism in the '90s, a lot of discourse about it. You have the the sort of founding of theories of hypermodernism and metamodernism, and the the postmodern kind of theme bifurcating into these different trends. 
<clears throat> and then all throughout the aughts, 2000 onward, you have post-postmodernism. Like you have a whole group of scholars going like, well, we don't know what to call it. Here's a placeholder, post-postmodernism. And all of that's really interesting too. And all of that is glossed over by, by the public discourse. <clears throat> and so, you know, we're really just shooting ourselves in the foot. Meanwhile, a lot of these conservatives and, and ex-liberals are, are patting themselves on the back. And it's like, okay, come on, guys. Like, <clears throat> we, you know, something's got to give. Something has to pivot. Somebody has to change. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm personally, I'm kind of tired of waiting and um, like looking for my own strategic points of intervention where I can like, obviously aspire to the, the charm and diplomacy of someone like Cornell West, but also be even more persuasive, be even more, um, you know, take no prisoners um, because, you know, Cornell West has this optimism, like, oh, we failed. We gotta, we gotta fail better. We gotta just own our, our inadequacies, but double down and commit to the cause, right? And meanwhile, people are dying, they're poor, like we're running out of steam, <clears throat> running out of time. So, um, you know, I'm looking for the, the opportunities to introduce the type of language that I'm using uh, uh, in part, because I think that, um, that that's the architecture, the, the, the metaphysics and the, the different presuppositions we come to the table with, right? So, so my idea <clears throat> of a metamodern paradigm is, is quite complex, right? And I can't even explain it <clears throat> on my own, let alone, you know, operate with it, make it operational, make it mm -hmm. uh, have, have an impact in the world. So, okay, you know, yeah. Well, okay. So there's a lot, a lot more to work with. <laughs> you know, it seems like almost every time we have, we have a, we have a response, it sort of leads into infinitely more threads that uh, could be addressed. So I'm trying to keep us on track and I'm trying to keep this, yeah. Uh, going in a somewhat uh, logical direction. Um, and I want to, you know, I, I really don't, uh, you know, I know that your work is focused on sort of the meta discourse problem itself, but I do want to, you know, put you on the spot a little bit to defend some of the positions that you have and to learn from you why you hold those positions. Um, so you yourself have said that you are, supportive of critical race theory, that you're pro-critical race theory, that you think it's a useful framework uh, for thinking about things um, and for analyzing the world, uh, given your sociological background. And one of the things that I find is interesting is that, you know, sociology doesn't need to necessarily include all of these theories. It's not like every school of sociology is practiced or endorsed by every sociologist. Uh, it would be insane to say something like that. Um, but for your particular brand of, of leftism, I believe you call yourself a socialist, uh, you agree that it's a useful framework. And I would say that more generally, you think that uh, issues such as systemic racism, uh, you know, analysis of, of privilege, et cetera, these kinds of related ideas surrounding race are things that you endorse and that you think are useful. Um, I don't know yeah, if we're going know. to. I don't know if we're going to overcome the fundamental difference mm -hmm. here in in that um, in that assumption. But I want to say. I want to say. Sorry before before I let you respond here. I want to. Uh, I, I want to address this issue of 
the accusation that it's a Trojan horse. Okay. So you, you said that a lot of the people on the right who engage with these ideas or are purportedly engaging with them uh, are claiming that it's a Trojan horse for leftism more generally for socialism or even communism on the extreme end. And my question to you is then if it's not a Trojan horse, is it possible to uh, embrace or approve of critical race theory and related ideas without being a leftist? Yeah, I think so. I, and I'll, I'll, I'll just kind of restate the point that like, yes, I'll be, a, I'll be a defender of CRT, but that's only like a kind of position that I'm forced into as a leftist having to, to defend the general, uh, Wait, but why, why are you, on... for, why are you forced into it? Um, well, because, um, as, as I was trying to say earlier, like, I think it's, I think it's a, a fine sort of subfield of academia, like hundreds of others. And I, and, and, and with that said, they also have their shortcomings and their diminishing returns in an, and inadequacies. So I don't want uh, people to get the wrong idea that I'm like just a proponent because I want to go beyond CRT, right? This is the this is the frustrating thing. Like I might you know have my own <clears throat> broad meta theory of which CRT is like a very very tiny part, like a few citations in an overall you know work. But but I want to I want to go beyond, and it's it's lonely operating at a level of discourses and and ideas that that are ostensibly beyond some of these things where we've already taken some of the assumptions of that prior work <clears throat> and its shortcomings and tried to try to synthesize it into a broader political program right so at the end of the day a lot of this politically does boil down to some of the basic uh and antagonisms between um left and right or liberal uh, liberal and conservative or left and liberal for that matter <clears throat> so um you know in the broad sense like i'm for universal education and the world in the united programs of universal education does not have um up to par public education systems so the downstream effects of that is you get a public discourse that's not very rigorous that's very like defensive and very strategic and um at the end of the day like the 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 racism problem is is like a perennial you know it just doesn't seem to go away even if by certain metrics we can witness it uh diminishing so yeah that's just a frame you know when when a subfield is under attack right it, like i said before it could be any subfield feminism marxism there's a lot of misinterpretation um there's a lot of what what i would call hate reading which is i think i think what james Lindsay does so it's evident from his book and it's evident from the critics who review the book that james Lindsay has done a lot of reading um and that he can craft an argument that's relatively persuasive however when you really get into the details like you can start to to pick apart like wh where it's just his his motivations and his sort of agenda driving the project as a reaction to to the left so 
I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, just, just in, in this case, in this podcast, right? Like in, in conversations, I want to create, help create the space to talk about these things without entrenchment and, <clears throat> um, you know, all sorts of fallacies, but, but to, mm. uh, yeah. And, 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 and full disclosure, right. I'm, I'm barely qualified to do that because it takes all sorts of, um, mediation and conflict resolution skills. And, uh, some of, you know, a lot of the people that do that, um, don't have the requisite knowledge to mediate. So, so we're really at a loss, right? Like, like assuming we're both good faith actors, you know, uh, pursuing world peace and some sort of epistemic, uh, consistency and truth. We're really like not well equipped to do that. Well, I, I, I mean, I, I, will I will disagree with that characterization, but I would say that uh, one of the things that I would be interested in potentially is trying to mediate a talk maybe between yourself and a third party uh, at some point in the future, just because I, I do agree that, um, you know, we all have biases. We all have blind spots. You and I are both coming in with our own particular worldviews. And uh, sometimes it can be helpful if you have a more or less disinterested individual who's witness to the conversation as well who could sort of point out when one side is being unfair or one side is sort of reacting very emotionally uh and another i think so far we've, we've done a good job of uh, traversing this conversation so far but we are going to start to get into some of the details here and there are some profound disagreements that you and i have and so i don't want to leave those uh unacknowledged simply because we're worried about upsetting one another um and i'm not going to go out of my way, way to attack you or anything like that but I do think we should uh, we should start with some of those disagreements. So um, the first thing that I just yeah, you know perfect. I, I want to react to uh, out of all the things that you've said so far uh, is that I fundamentally view and I I would put myself in this camp as well. I fundamentally view the reaction to the left that you're describing by many former leftists, by many leftists who are sort of you know kind of you know right adjacent or if you want to call them that, uh, and and of course by the right wing themselves, <clears throat> I view that as a largely a justified response to the excesses of the left. And in particular, the way in which uh, the left-wing discourse, uh, especially surrounding uh, various aspects of identity, things like gender, race, uh, sex, uh, have torn down a lot of the liberal project that preceded it. And that a lot of these people view themselves as, you know, they call themselves liberals or they call themselves, you know, classical liberals. When they say, uh, you, know, you know, I didn't leave the left, the left left me. You know, these kinds of phrases, they're all kind of referring to that same thing, which is that there is a kind of overreach or a kind of uh, overemphasis on these issues at a at a period of time in which they they actually were declining. So you you admitted uh, that there are, uh, you know, measurable markers of the decline of racism over time, but that it does seem to be a perennial problem. And one of the things that I worry about in these discussions and getting trapped in is the fact that both you and I have a very United States-centric uh, view on this, which is that we were raised in the United States. And as everyone would know, the United States has a very peculiar racial history. Uh, and in, in particular, the divide between black yeah. and white is more prominent in our past and in the trajectory of the historical, you talk about historicism, the historical trajectory of the United States than it is in a lot of other places. Uh, in particular, because the majority population here is not the indigenous population, like it might be, let's say, in Europe, right? Um, and so that causes us, I think, to 
overly emphasize these issues in the context of the United States when really what we're talking about is the whole world. It's not clear to me, for example, that anti-racism or that a focus on anti-racist praxis is necessarily the biggest thing, uh, or, or, or I'm sorry, that the opponents of anti-racism or the opponents of anti-racist praxis, praxis is necessarily the biggest hurdle to making progress uh, in most places. And in fact, I would even contend that racism itself is largely a non-barrier for most people in today's society. Now, I, I know that you disagree with that characterization. And so I just want to, you know, I want us to throw it out on the table right now that we have this fundamental disagreement, which is the, the role that race plays in contemporary society, uh, its relevance, and how much we should be emphasizing it in our politics and our discourse. I would say, I'm just going to put my, my position out. I would say that those who are more uh, leaning towards my side view a lot of the actions of the left and a lot of the emphasis on critical race studies as re-racializing society, as exacerbating racial tensions and racial identity where it might not otherwise be as salient to people on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, I don't see a lot of racial strife or racial resentment or racial anything in my day-to-day -day interactions uh, with people. And it's not because I, don't inter I only interact with people of my same race. It's that largely mo most people are just normal people. They're not thinking about race all the yeah. time. Um, yeah. And so that's, that's, my, that's my contention. My contention is that a lot of the wokeness, a lot of the uh, anti-racism, a lot of the DEI stuff is causing people to once again think in very racial terms when they otherwise might not. And to me, that's a step backwards, not a step forwards. Yeah, yeah, good stuff there. So, so let's just say, like, I agree with a lot of that. And let's say, hypothetically, I agree with all of it. I will give some pushback, but let, let's just say I agree with it. That's almost precisely why I'd still urge you to move to the left, to the left project. And so to give, just to give that context, like I'll say, yes, there is a kind of overreach or <clears throat> um, uh, going too far or hyperbole or, you know, um, various uh, inappropriate, you know, protest tactics um, on the left. There's problems. But, but um, there's a couple answers to it. One is I see it as, as pretty marginal. I also see it as necessary somewhat. You can't not talk about it. And, and also to your point of not seeing the day-to-day -day effects of racism or even racialization, right? Like you can, you can go to a place and interact with all sorts of people with no problem, right? Like I, I get it. And I think in part, it's, it's a choice like, this is a sociological thing, right? I think most people might be aware to some extent, but they choose to, you know, curate their life and their and their feeds to uh, not see a lot of that stuff. So a lot of the the instances of continued um, systemic racism or just you know case studies, you can you can point to um, an example that's given and say, oh, that's just one example, right? Like the a, a bad cop is one bad apple and we shouldn't have a systemic critique of policing. Um, but I think it's very easy to either get stuck in an echo chamber and just not see these things um, or to, um, you know, post hoc rationalize what you're seeing as just an outlier incident. Right. So, you know, the George Floyd killing, it's like, 
well, that was a perfect storm of kind of, you know, it was caught on camera and, you know, the, the cops, cops were standing by as Derek Chauvin like kneeled on him. And then, you know, a year later, Derek Chauvin's actually convicted of murder. Uh, so it's a little bit of a victory, a Pyrrhic victory for the left that just literally wants like not, it's not about like a, a scapegoating or, or witch hunting every cop or every white person it's about the long-term goals of actually achieving a post-racial society. And so <clears throat> a lot of lefties get mad at Obama because he, you know, he's like labeled as a post-racial president, but he really, um, whether we blame him directly or we blame the office of the presidency, he kept the status quo. He kept the status quo. So the liberal left divide is very sharp, very salient. And that's why lefties are, you know, beleaguered <laughs> under attack from both liberals and conservatives. So I'll let you let you finish your sentence. Yeah, well, just just on that, the, that particular um, <clears throat> thread, you know, like uh, new centrism or third way politics, like it's a kind of neoliberal centrist alliance that uh, is largely... Um, dysfunctional let's say but but nevertheless like has popularity and salience right such that you know uh, you know hillary clinton can kind of you know or keir starmer in the uk you know they they kind of or Bi biden today for this matter they ride this platform um well well beyond its welcome right where where it is just a bunch of lip service and affirmative action which only tweaks the system well, well and also every major corporation and university i mean they're all they're all doing this stuff right so so from my yeah. perspective from my perspective it's hard for me to see a lot of these leftists and these leftist discourse as coming from uh you know the underdog right the the the, the bottom up because there's so much astroturfing happening uh, where the largest institutions in the world, uh, you know, I mean, Goldman Sachs and, uh, you know, Bank of America and all the big tech companies, Google and, you know, the intelligence agencies. And, you know, it, it looks to me as if all of power and, and maybe this is just neoliberalism. I, I wouldn't be opposed to calling it that is perfectly fine co-opting all this language of Black Lives Matter and, you know, feminism and trans rights and gay rights. I mean, the, the, the pride parade is like sponsored by Citigroup, right? Yeah. Uh, so capital, you know, if you're if you're coming from a Marxist perspective, which I don't know if you are a Marxist, but capital is perfectly happy to align with these identity issues. And I do believe that they're doing so cynically that they don't actually care that much about genuine structural change or helping actual poor people, for example, because they've totally dismissed class at this point. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's that's like my other huge problem with it is like it looks to me like you're just aligning yourself with power and that. Right. <clears throat> and, and that um, and that all these issues are overinflated and they're they're being faked as a way to essentially do wealth transfers. Um, and essentially gain more power over everyday citizens, regardless of what color they are. So, I mean, how do you respond to that? That's a similar to like a lot of the critiques that come from like the Red Scare crowd, for example. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. What what you described partly there is woke washing, right? Like just like green washing and pink washing and black washing. That's um, and white washing, of course. It's really a process that's deeply entrenched, whether it's conscious or unconscious, on on the part of the actors doing it. 
And so, of course, with um, with woke washing, you know, like like Coke or the CIA, you know, doing all this woke shit, uh, pretty much every lefty is against it. Pretty much mm-hmm. every, um, you know, and I, I think it's unambiguous. They're against that. And so because there's such a such polarization, right, the the um, the the further left like uh, people of which I would, I would count myself, like, first of all, it's, there's no equivalence with the far right. You know, the far right has white supremacist mass shootings occasionally, you know, the left doesn't have a comparable kind of uh, vector of expression, <clears throat> but, but everything becomes muddled in the center of the discourse, right? And you have all this woke washing. And so, um, I do like to frame it in the broadest sense as a, as a struggle between the, you know, capital and the social or capitalism and socialism, but I don't want to be too reductive about it. Like you asked me if I was a Marxist, um, I'd say no, because, because Marxism is a part of my education. It's a cornerstone of sociology and there's many different threads of Marxism, right? Many, many, uh, concepts and tools that are very useful without having to be a Marxist. And I'd also make a major, major distinction between academic Marxism and political Marxism, right? Like I wouldn't join a Marxist party, for example. And, and I've talked with a Mark and actually I'm in Canada, by the way, like I care very much about American politics and uh, global politics, but I often do have a conscious focus on the United States because of the military industrial complex. And it's, you know, you, you, you made a very valid point about America's unique history. It, it's unique in that it's personal to America, but it's also not unique in that, you know, colonialism and imperialism and slavery uh, has existed in many cultures and uh, <clears throat> many global contexts and still does, right? We, we really live in a global context, which is also why one of the, the constant points of contestation between lefties and liberals and conservatives is nationalism versus cosmopolitanism, right? It's not necessarily an either or thing, but, but, uh, but cosmopolitanism, cosmopolitanism is definitely an, a kind of overarching truth about the planetarity that, that we're in, right? So kind of, um, you know, global trade and the internet, everything's very interdependent and very fragile and, uh, you know, constantly crossing new thresholds, right? So the, the, even the concept of the nation state is withering and being replaced by multinational corporations and a lot of nationalist ideology, right? So there's a broader geopolitical leftist analysis that kind of frames everything that's happening, right? So you have these far right movements. <clears throat> and when, when you situ- situate yourself within it, as, as you and I are doing, there, there's lots of important points to hash out and discuss, right? Like, <clears throat> like um, at, well, what we've been talking about and let's say critical race theory but, but for me, the, it's necessary to get through it so we can have a, bro- a broader conversation 
about class struggle, about globalization, about, <clears throat> about climate change, uh, so that we can, we can converge on a healthy politics, which, which uh, you know, is still nascent. It's still trying to emerge. And so uh, just, just to close out where we started on this thread, like there was definitely, you know, in, in the first Bernie campaign, I remember some Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter organizers, like crashing one of his events and just going up on stage and taking the mic from him. And uh, yeah, that, that, know, that moment, all, by the way, really hurt Bernie. It made him look super weak. It did. It did. Like, first of all, that kind of tactic is not really appropriate and it doesn't serve the interests of Black Lives Matter. But also the, the way the way Bernie handled it and subsequently had issues. And there was, you know, I felt I felt throughout the two campaigns over five years, I had a lot of criticisms myself uh, of, of the campaigns and of left politics, but it was all constructive criticism. It was all like, you know, owning the mistakes of the left. And, and again, I'll, you know, return to Michael Brooks because he was a, a regular political commentator. He literally addressed this kind of stuff every week and I couldn't get centrists to watch it. You know, I couldn't get, I couldn't get a uh, crosstalk to happen. Um, but, but nevertheless, you know, week in, week out, tons of lefties and myself included in the articles I've published about the IDW, about Jordan Peterson, we are engaging with their content. We want to find a solution to go through. And it's been incredibly frustrating to just have that narrative kind of subsumed and, uh, you know, swamped by, by the noise of the culture war, frankly. Mm hmm so, uh, well, so I wanted to ask you a little bit about this concept of white supremacy. Uh, you've mentioned it a few times already uh, in passing in various of your comments. And um, I don't think that white supremacy is a problem in our current context. And I'll give you a little bit more uh, details on that uh, so that I can flesh it out a little bit. I've never met a white supremacist. Uh, online or in person. I've never met somebody who actually claimed that white people are better or that white people should be in charge uh, or that uh, other races are inherently inferior in any way. Um, now, I do know of white nationalists. I know that I know of people who are white separatists, for example, who believe that there should be white communities for white people and that white people have a right to establish those kinds of, um, you know, let's say polities for themselves. And I do know of people who uh, are, are racist, right? I know people online, for example, uh, who are just, you know, they go on Twitter and they're, you know, they're almost always anonymous accounts because no one wants to have any of that stuff tied to their name, but uh, who go on Twitter and they just, you know, they sort of race troll. And I know people who do it from a left perspective. I know people who do it from a right perspective. There are black race trolls. There are white race trolls. There are all kinds of race trolls. Um, that being said, uh, you know, I view this uh, this concern for white supremacy as really a problem uh, and a, a, an imaginary problem. I'll just say straight up. And the reason I think it's an imaginary problem is because I think you have organizations like uh, like the ACLU and like like the ADL, for example, uh, who were tasked with a mandate, you know, around the time that they were invented to deal with real serious, let's say, systemic problems, right? 
problems that were instantiated in our laws and, and that were on the books. <clears throat> uh, and what happened after the Cultural Revolution of the 60s and in the preceding uh, decades was that slowly and slowly as we began to chip away at some of those problems that those organizations were established to deal with, uh, they basically ran out of stuff to do. You know, in an organization like the ADL, if there isn't any hate around, they don't have a reason to exist. And so they are perversely incentive, incented to uh, generate the perception of, let's say, rampant white supremacy when maybe there is none. Um, now, you mentioned some of those some of those shootings. And, you know, there's a whole side conversation about like you know, incels and various kinds of other ideologies yeah. that that are involved gun, in those gun gun culture. Yeah. Yeah. Gun, yeah. Uh, that being said, I don't see there's I haven't seen very much really hard evidence that those those instances were were grounded were grounded in white supremacist ideology. And so, um, you know, is it simply that my understanding of white supremacy, which I've described here, is separate, is different from your understanding of it? And is that the problem or is there something I'm missing? <clears throat> yeah, I think. Um, OK, I, I want to say I, I wanted to say this all throughout because you're I think you're really articulate, but I want to say that. I really do feel like I understand your perspective and the general right uh, perspective on these issues. <clears throat> that doesn't mean it's going to be easy to unpack or that, you know, anything's going to going to change, but I think I understand it and I'm, I'm willing to dive in and, and, and just keep, keep hashing these things out. So off, off the top, when people call Tucker Carlson, a white supremacist, there is a nugget of truth, a kernel of truth, but it is it is also hyperbole, right? They're they're calling him a white supremacist as opposed to a white nationalist or just whatever, right? And it's it's hyperbole. It's also not accurate when when you get into the details. And and yes, to your point, like there's not as much you know Ku Klux Klan membership or whatever, and we can we can call a lot of the, the instances like. You know, the Ahmed Arbery shooting, right? This was a, a black guy who was ostensibly just going for a jog and literally a couple white guys hunted him down as a kind of vigilante justice and shot him in the street. And there's video of that. And so, you know, I think a lot of that is indicative of systemic racism, but then critics will come back and say, yeah, but the data is like, you know, white people are getting shot by cops too, you know, blah, blah, blah. So leaving that aside for a moment, my point where I want to try to elucidate this topic is that, you know, since the 60s and 70s, but also throughout history, these social issues are abstracted. And I mean abstracted in the negative kind of obfuscatory way, right? So, so Lee Atwater, who is a Republican strategist and I think campaign manager or something for George Bush Sr., um, you know, was is on tape saying that that the part of the Republican strategy, the the Southern strategy specifically, was to pivot away from slurs to coded language about policies that that had racist effects because it appeases the white voter base, right? So, like you said, redlining at some point, <clears throat> that's one of these examples, right? Or or um states' rights or, or forced busing are the examples that Lee Atwater uses. So, you know, I'd agree to a large extent that, that racism 
is partly, you know, diminished in contemporary society. People can see past it in the right contexts. Um, uh, and it's just not a problem if you don't go looking for it, right? However, I have met a, um, a what I'd call a white nationalist or a white separatist. I, I know one. I can think of someone specifically I've met in person who, uh, you know, just uses all sorts of elaborate defenses, um, really just to kind of, um, it's kind of white identity politics, as I alluded to at the beginning. Yeah, in, yeah. His, in his case, like he's actually worried about the birth rates or the uh, demographics of white people diminishing and decreasing. I don't care. I don't give a shit. And, and the, so the point is like, you can be white skinned, white passing, like, like you and I both are, and, and also not get offended by things like whiteness studies. Because if we're, if we're self-conscious about the systems of racism and class oppression and whatnot, that, and, and uh, patriarchy and these things that do exist, even if it's uh, not everywhere all the time, uh, I'm not, I'm not bothered by it at all because I, I consider myself and I think rightly so as just like, you know, a citizen of the world. I, I, I share, you know, Canada with, with, uh, indigenous people. And so I support kind of the social justice causes to rectify those historical injustices, which in part, sometimes it's just in part storytelling, you know, getting the truth out about residential schools, getting the truth out about high, high rates of incarceration of black, black people because of the drug war. And so, yeah, you know, we could actually have a of oppression that actually affect everybody negatively, but it disproportionately affects, you know, women, people of color, all these sorts of things. And one thing I struggle with in debating people or conversing with people about this subject, it's like just trying to foreground the point or, or put in context, like, why is it, uh, you know, X person is offended by whiteness studies and critiques of whiteness and patriarchy and, and, and they, they have a visceral fear that their identity and agency are being eroded. Why is it they have that and I don't? <clears throat> and I think well, it does come back to how can I, can I answer that conceptually form this stuff? Yeah. Well, so for right up for, for starters, it's not like whiteness studies is the same thing as say African-American studies mm -hmm. right, or women's studies, right? Whereas those studies, which are attached to a particular identity are explicit about advocating for members of that group. Whereas whiteness studies is critical. The purpose of whiteness studies mm. is to, essentially expose, you know, I would say diminish, but uh, you, you might say critique uh, whiteness as a concept and white people in general uh, as, a, as an extension of that. Uh, and so why would I have an interest in uh, engaging or promoting something that uh, is essentially just designed to disenfranchise me to, uh, to erase my cultural history or to degrade it as something that was evil or something that committed all of these sins. There's no culture in the world that's free of sin that hasn't uh, enslaved or attacked or stolen from another culture. Uh, and so I don't understand what the point is of singling out, let's say, white culture, which, which again is a, an amorphous term because when we're talking about, you know, quote unquote, white people, white, light skinned individuals. 
those are people from Europe and the Caucasus region. Are we talking about Armenians? Are we talking about Spaniards? Are we talking about Norwegians? You know, if you go to Europe, it's different, I, I'd say here in North America. Um, but if you go to Europe, they really have a conception of their identity, not as white, but as a I'm a this I'm a I'm a Frenchman. I'm a I'm a Spaniard. I'm a Bulgarian. Uh, and so that's part of the issue for me is that, uh, you know, really what it's doing is it's 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 whitewashing um, something. And it's again, it's recharacterizing me by the color of my skin, which I want to get away from. You know, it, you're, you're saying that these these uh, you know, these minorities don't want to be judged by the color of their skin either. So why would I and why would I want to why would I want to endorse an ideology that is seeking to continually focus on that and to, to, to bring that into everyday discussions around policy, around schooling, around, you know, around, let's say, uh, like financing and loans. You know, that's the new thing now is, uh, you know, making sure that you get loans for particular communities. Um, and my last point on this here is just uh, a matter of, of personal um, history. And you can prefer to share your background or, or not. It's up to you. But I'll just say for me. So I'm the son of an immigrant. Right. So I'm a first generation American. My, my father and his parents came here from the Soviet Union uh, when when he was young and uh, in the 1980s. And uh, I also happen to be of Jewish background. So we were we were, uh, you know, Estonian or Russian Jews from the Soviet Union. And so when I hear about all these racial politics and racial issues and, and, you know, whiteness in the United States, I'm sorry, but Russian Jews were not involved in any of that. Mm -hmm. we, we were not part of that. That's not part of my lineage, mm -hmm. my history. Uh, and, and in fact, we're recent, very recent arrivals. We didn't come here until the eighties. And so even most of the stuff that came after that with the civil rights struggle, we were not involved in either. Um, and so when I hear that stuff, it just makes me think, well, this has nothing to do with me other than the accident that yeah. I happen to have light skin. Uh, and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, you know, maybe you can argue there's some sort of, uh, you know, uh, residue of benefits that are still sort of, you know, trickling down or whatever to me today. Uh, but at the end of the day, none of that had anything to do with us. Uh, particularly, I think Jews have a, have a particular claim to, you know, we're obviously not going to be white supremacists or white identitarians. Um, and, you know, uh, you know, my, my ancestors were, were, were fighting, uh, we're fighting Adolf Hitler in, in the Red Army. And in fact, I have relatives who, who were killed in the Holocaust. And the only reason the, that my particular, uh, you know, lineage survived, my, my, my ancestors survived, is because they were enlisted in Stalin's army and were working on behalf of the Russians to, to fight the Germans. And so when I hear this stuff, that's, that's part of why it offends me is because this has nothing to do with me, frankly. Yeah, <clears throat> Yeah, and I, I I sympathize, and it has nothing to do with me either in a direct way. However, I do try to own the fact that it has a lot to do with me in an indirect way if I choose to take that on. <clears throat> like, we're all just born in a particular place and time. We don't have any control over that. And then that plays a huge role in shaping who we are. Um, and my my father is from England. So, and he was an immigrant. <clears throat> um, and I mean, that, that, that's, a, that's about it. I have some Italian kind of heritage, but like on the level of my intellectual interests and political interests, like it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. I'm not going to be, you know, pro UK and pro Canada. I'm pro cosmopolitan. And, and there's a couple more interesting things you said I want to touch on. One is the historical 
thing. Uh, you know, you have you have uh, family lost in the Holocaust and, and uh, Russian soldiers. And I, I mean, I think my grandfather, one of my grandfathers fought in World War II to some extent. Um, but it's not so personal for me. <clears throat> but the point I want to make is that, you know, I've brought up historicity and, and historicizing a lot. And I think you agree on the importance of that. At the same time, it's like, how do we get away from the kind of militarist kind of uh, <clears throat> dependency that, you know, glamorizes past conflicts, like, you know, defeating the Nazis, obviously really important, but like, what about just the abstract argument about the war, you know, the, the war machine writ large, the military industrial complex before Eisenhower coined it, because it certainly existed. It just wasn't so formalized and, and systematized. Uh, and so it's so funny to me because it seems to me like that's a that's an outgrowth largely of international banking, right? You had famously uh, international bankers funding both sides of World War One, for example. And so it's interesting to me that you're pro cosmopolitanism. In fact, World War One is viewed by many to be a sort of pan European war that was attempting to unify Europe. Uh, and so. It's interesting to me that you're you're both pro cosmopolitan and pro globalism, but also anti military industrial complex. I view them to be yeah. very tightly linked. Yeah, there's there's an argument for that, but for, for example, but for I, exa yeah. I'm sorry, last interruption. Go ahead. For example, the only reason that the current state of globalization is able to continue apace rather peacefully is because of the United States empire and its globalized military outreach which essentially protects and enforces trade routes and agreements all over the world. Uh, and as the United States' uh, you know, supremacy begins to decline over the next century, which it's, it's going to to some extent because of issues like a rising China and, 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 and India and even Russia coming out of the Soviet Union era, um, those things are going to get much more contentious and much more harder to enforce. And so part of the reason why we've had such a long era of global peace and trade and prosperity post-World War II is because there has been this large presence of the United States, which essentially is acting like the policeman of the world and for and enforcing a global order in part through its military might. Yeah, yeah. There's, I think, a very compelling arguments that exist for that. And it really, you know, gets into the nitty gritty details, which are, which are far beyond us. Like, let's be, let's be frank. There's too much history in the 20th century to really do too much finger pointing, you know, and too much kind of like assumptions about causality, because there's things that drive countries into situations and choices. And uh, for better or worse, right? So the America was hesitant to get into World War II and then, you know, the entire Cold War, there's, I think, ample, ample critiques that can be made of the, the whole Cold War culture, right? But, but we, let's just, let's just um, for the moment kind of say that it was inevitable. You know, <clears throat> I'm trying to, you know, work away from those types of uh, tele teleologies, but let's just, you know, use it as an assumption for a moment because geopolitics is really complex and there's like so many factors to to juggle live and um so i i say all that perhaps to make a point about the end of the cold war the end of postmodernism, and the path that the united states chose and the the various bifurcations and choices that it had 
And, and one thing that's super important to do while acknowledging a kind of realist perspective, we have to not continually accept the premises that things have to be the way they are, you know, like, like, um, you know, like I think just in terms of the, 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 the potential pivots of the of the turn of the century you know in my in my view there's a kind of consensus that um that the supreme court and bush stole the 2000 election that it was you know very very uh close race and that there was a lot of like um sort of panicking and, and backdoor um kind of decision making such that al gore at the 11th hour just was like okay I concede. And, and, and a lot of history turns on that kind of thing. Now, I'm not trying to make counterfactuals like, oh, if Al Gore was president or if Bernie was president, everything would be fine. <laughs> it's not that simple. The struggle would continue under a different frame of reference. But the whole war on terror thing is just a transparent, egregious, like, um, kind of, um, uh, kind of, really desperate grasp for, for global power, for neorealist perspectives. And I think something like uh, the movie Team America, World Police is a, is a near perfect satire of that. It's like, really, what the hell are we doing? And I make that point just to, to say, like with the Cold War and with the War on Terror, there's this longstanding um, kind of tradition of American exceptionalism right though we don't we don't have to answer to the international criminal court well in a just world you do um so there's a deepening of the crisis of globalization because nobody's nobody you know almost nobody's playing by their own standards <clears throat> and <clears throat> you know so we need to be able to understand the end of the cold war and the 90s and the 2000s in terms of also a, a theoretical kind of kind of map, right? Where you have the, the waning of postmodernism and the bifurcation of, of hyper and metamodernism and, and um, <clears throat> the various points of constellation that, that give a picture of like uh, the potential and the, uh, the, the um, pathology of the 21st century you know we're 21 years into this century and you know not not so good and as as we you know we disagree on the politics but like i'll agree to extend there's been a lot of just uh, performative like virtue signaling from the democratic party and a lot of a lot of pandering a lot of centrism such that you have you know hillary clinton is opposing gay marriage even up until 2013 yet she's still kind of the chosen one you know there's there's real no depth of criticism and and so i'm always interested in trying to if possible steer the conversation back to the to the, the meta crisis the things mm -hmm. that entrench us and make us screwed yeah well so whenever i reach across the aisle and i talk to leftists now that by the way i don't really consider myself to be a particularly right-wing guy uh, I think in the last five years or so, I've sort of moved more in that direction, but I don't, you know, historically that was never, you know, my cup of tea. I, I'm not a registered Republican. I, I voted for Obama, you know, like okay. I voted, I voted mm. for Hillary. <laughs> um, mm. So, you know, it's like not, uh, not been, uh, you know, uh, definitely not an ideologue in that sense. Um, that being said, 
you know, when I have leftists on the show, usually the leftists that I find to be the most um, agreeable to my particular view are what I would consider to be the remnants of what I call the old left, right? Which is the left that is not so much concerned with these kind of, uh, frankly, what I think these are is uh, uh, fleeting cultural issues um, and kind of temporary distractions. I've already told you my my, my, you know, my position on the way in which a lot of these issues are kind of embraced by power and astroturfed to sort of avoid actually having real serious conversations about real consequences. Um, the leftists that I enjoy talking to the most are the ones who recognize that these large institutions of power, and you've been critical in this conversation of the Democratic Party, and you've been critical, of course, of sort of the, the Washington consensus or the neoliberal consensus, if you want to call it that, um, are really generally concerned with economic issues and generally concerned with, uh, you know, transfer schemes, elaborate transfer schemes, and tend to be, uh, this is not always the case, but they tend to be more on sort of the populist uh, left kind of uh, side of things. Now, populism is kind of uh, become a almost exclusively right-wing term, but there are left-wing populists. Uh, you know, socialists in some, in many ways are, are that, are left-wing populists. Um, but I view that as it's kind of antithetical to cosmopolitanism because cosmopolitanism is sort of about, you know, uh, you know, large corporations, large cities, uh, you know, abstracting away from the particulars and, and local issues and local concerns. Um, and in my view, if you're pro-cosmopolitan and you're pro-globalism, uh, you're not necessarily on the side of, let's say, defending or advocating for the, the rights and the, um, the well-being of the citizens inside of the country that you're in. You're more interested in sort of, like you said, being a citizen of the world. And you imagine yourself to not be a Canadian who owes some uh, debt to your fellow Canadians, but as someone who, uh, you know, if you meet someone who, who's in India and you happen to have more in common with that person because you're both hanging out in Singapore for the weekend or something like that, you're more interested in that person than you are in necessarily your individual Canadians. And I think that 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 position now, maybe I'm mischaracterizing it. I, I'm happy for you to clarify. Um, that position to me is extremely degrading and also extremely impersonal, uh, in that you're not taking into account the fact that you have a context that you're situated within. And despite whatever the concerns you have of nationalism might be, uh, at in our present arrangement, nation states are kind of the encapsulated, you know extent of the political community. They're still defined as nation states at the moment. Um, and so to me, it's important to have to feel some kind of duty and obligation to the individuals that are around you, not only in your local community, but also on whatever political scales you're involved in. And oftentimes the danger that I see with cosmopolitanism and with issues around globalism is that their, their narratives that sound really good uh, on the surface, but are ultimately leading towards very anti-human tendencies yeah. uh, and trends. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in particular, we know, for example, that with global trade, for example, with a free trade regime, what you're actually doing is you're exercising in economic terms, a social Darwinist um, schema, whereby your, uh, your, your potential gain from lowering trade barriers 
uh, is uh, the square of your current net worth, which, which is to say that the people who are already the best positioned economically are in fact the ones who will benefit the most from having a free trade regime. And so really what you're doing is you're actually creating a certain kind of social Darwinism, uh, which ironically goes back to some of the early strains of progressivism, which were concerned with things like eugenics and the belief that you sort of create a better society by you know, putting people in competition with one another, which, which again, I think was sort of a, a, a way for progressives at the time to sort of get away from yeah. the communist level. But all that is too much to say. Um, I guess my question for you is how do you respond to that? I, most of the leftists that I talk to are becoming more populist, more localist, less on the cosmopolitan route. Do you think yeah. that's a valid uh, critique? Uh, yeah, to an extent, like, I guess first I'd say that, you know, it's not either either or for me. So I'm striving for a kind of cosmo localism where <clears throat> where on one hand, we're trying to transcend the assumptions of zero sum dynamics that constrict politics, right? Because the only way we're going to like give people the free universal healthcare they deserve is to decouple it from that zero sum discourse. And, um, and so, yeah, there's definitely dark sides to cosmopolitanism and globalism. And, you know, it, it's really tricky because it, it's so easy to participate in, in systems of oppression, right? Like, like um, being an Amazon customer, <laughs> you know, like I, you know, Jeff Bezos is a, is a, is a POS as far as I'm concerned. He's, he's, he's a Lex Luthor type. He's not necessarily a creative genius just because he sits atop a massive multinational corporation and he's worth like 200 billion now. And so, you know, he's just not a part of the social movement or even I'd say kind of social reality that most of us participate in, right? He's concerned with like performing his space race kind of thing. And he'd be uh, very pro-globalization because it would give him yeah. lower prices. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, I'm not at all trying to dodge the question. It's just incredibly complex because globalization is just happening whether we like it or not. So I think pro-globalist and anti-globalist positions kind of miss the point, you know, and, and as do well, well, so local I, I, versus cosmopolitan. I disagree with that. It's not, it's not as if it's some imper, it, 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 in unstoppable force that's just happening to us, right? It, it's important that we don't view these trends as lacking all human agency. I think we make a choice to, to be more pro-globalization or less. And when you talk about the fragility, let's say, of our interconnected global systems, it's true that they're fragile. It's true that supply chain breakdowns and other disturbances, as we've seen with the pandemic, can cause severe issues all over the place and unexpected cascading effects uh, that uh, really do cause a lot of harm. That being said, it's part of the product of our massive interconnectedness and of our centralization. That is why it's so dangerous. And in fact, if you if you prune some of those connections and you try to make uh, individual regions of autonomy or individual nation states a little bit less dependent on or less less dependent on other places far away for their needs to be met, basic things like food or medical supplies, et cetera. You actually reduce some of that existential risk of what will happen if, you know, the supply chains break down. So I think it's actually important to when we think about like it's not really just a question of like uh, 
globalization, like you're pro-globalization or anti-globalization or you're pro-localist or you're pro, you know, post-national or whatever you want to call it. It's also a question of what makes sense in terms of insulating the amount of harm that we're creating and recognizing that it's not simply, um, we're not only getting nothing but benefits from, from these globalized, you know, let's say trade, trade networks, for example. There are, there are costs that we have to acknowledge and it may be prudent for us to uh, scale back some of those operations or let's say bring the factories home, let's say bring pharmaceutical manufacturing back to the United States, for example, um, in order to not, to, well, for one, to benefit your own people, to give them well-paying jobs and invest in industry back home, but also to um, not be so dependent, again, on those, on those global supply chains. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know how you feel about this, but I don't like the fact that, you know, the that, that China is basically the largest trade partner with almost everybody in the world at this point, uh, you know, including the United States. Uh, yeah, I don't like a lot of the things that the Chinese regime does. I don't like how they treat people. I don't like their views on, uh, you know, on, uh, on human rights. Hmm. And I, I think you would agree with a lot of those things. Um, and yet, you know, in the globalized system of trade that we have at the moment, everybody wants to get into China. Everyone wants to make money in China, you know, and it's, yeah. it's, uh, Anyway, so 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 yeah, all that is all good. that is is just say that uh, I think there are, um, you know, I'm not I'm not um, anti-global globalization because I think trade is bad. I'm anti-globalization because I think it actually creates a lot of unexpected, unintended consequences. And it, it that does. if we focus more on uh, cultivating independence, true independence um, in as local of a context as we can, whether that's on your your city level or your state level or your national level um, that structural struct, structuring things properly, you know, here in America, we're all federalists um, is essential to minimizing risk. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of that rings true, especially just sort of the overproduction and consumption of the supply chains. Like, yes, we're harming the planet through extraction and dependency on, on resources and goods from all over the world. So just, just to kind of put that aside for a moment, just to, to rearticulate what, like what the thrust of, let's say cosmopolitan socialism, the thrust of it is first and foremost to have a kind of global conscience or consciousness and ideological solidarity so that we're literate as political activists of what's going on in China, India, Turkey, Brazil, Russia, et cetera. And also I'd say, you know, I think it's ridiculous to be like, like, like a kind of staunchly anti or pro a country, you know, as you, as you touched on, every country is guilty, has blood on its hands to, for the most part. And so it's ridiculous to be, you know, anti-Russia or pro-Russia or anti-China or pro-China. It just is what it is, you know? And we have to recognize that we've actually, you know, notwithstanding the pandemic, we've actually got a pretty free global mobility system. If you have the money to travel and this, this um, <clears throat> you know, this connects with uh, what's, uh, what's called white privilege, of course. But again, if you have the money, right, you can travel anywhere and well, and I mean, does it, does it really yourself connect? in those I mean, cultures? does it really, 
does it really connect with white privilege? There are more Chinese millionaires right now <laughs> right, than, there are, right. than there are white millionaires. Well, so yeah, like, this, this is, this is, is that thing. really, like, so, is that even really a defensible statement to make anymore? Like there are more, okay. So there are more colored no, people, you make a good point, quote unquote colored people in the whole world than there are, mm-hmm. than there are white people because white people are basically only in Europe, North America and Australia mm-hmm. and New Zealand. Yeah. Um, those are the places where they're the majority population. By definition, most of the world is non-white. Uh, yeah. And therefore, they still have tremendous amounts of, of wealth. I, again, this is like an instance where I think we have a tendency it's, to view things from yeah. our local perspective. And in our local perspective of the United States and Canada, we have issues that are particular to our history and to our demographics that other places in the world uh, let's say India, for example, although India, of course, has their own <laughs> history with colonialism and whatnot. Yeah. But let's say let's just say Japan and China. OK, those are those are largely um, homogenous uh, ethnic states. Um, they don't have those same issues. You know, they might have I, other actually, class I issues. think I think they I think they might have it way more than we're aware of. It's it's not it's not something I track very closely. But I think if you go looking for that kind of literature and scholarship, I think there it's it's there. And so just to get back to your point about white fragility, I think you're correct. But the response to it is that the concept of white fragility is conditional. It's only true in certain circumstances. So I'm agreeing with you there. And like I would say, well, would you would you ever use the term black fragility? uh, Oh, well, no, we're talking about white privilege. Did I say fragility? Yeah, you said fragility there. Yeah, sorry times. about that. I meant I meant white privilege. Um, we'll 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 talk about the fr- fragility thing in a second. I'll just say that that yeah, it's not universally true that there's such a thing as white privilege. However, I've backpacked through South America and through India. I absolutely had a kind of Western uh, affluent uh, skin color advantage well, in so, some so ways, and also disadvantage. You know, you the- get taken advantage of as a tourist. Sometimes, I know that but... you can't, I know that you can't know this for sure, but do you think that there were other markers, like for example, markers of wealth that would have been, that would have caused them to treat you the same had you been, let's say a wealthy Chinese tourist or a wealthy yeah, Indian? Absolutely. Man? And that, that's the whole, that's the whole kind of conceit of intersectionality is that these things really shouldn't be looked at in isolation because they're, they're intersectional. And I think it's a misinterpretation and misappropriation of the term when the critics strike back and say it's the oppression Olympics, for example, right? I don't, I, you know, there, there's a there's a modicum of merit to that phrasing, but I don't I don't buy the oppression Olympics as a as a as a rebuttal of of intersectionality because I think intersectionality is actually quite a robust uh, empirical kind of uh, both theory and a normative kind of um, program to draw down those differences. Well, so I, yeah. I don't think, I don't think it is. Mm-hmm. I mean, what is it, what is it actually purporting to measure? Um, and, and the other thing too, is it doesn't, so I gave you my background, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. If we're talking about intersectionalism, okay, does intersectionality take into account uh, the fact that I'm Jewish or does it take into yeah. account? I mean, no, it doesn't. But, I mean, I, intersectional discourse is mostly concerned with, you know, so, so I, I mean, the original, the original appearance of intersectionality, which uh, I had to look back into, uh, you know, in order to prepare, prepare for this, you know, when Crenshaw wrote about intersectionality, what she was writing about were court cases 
uh, particularly of black women. This is published in feminist studies. So, you know, it's not it's not directly related to critical race theory, although it does end up getting used in it later. Um, in which basically you needed to account for certain, you know, demographic characteristics that are that are, that happen to do with being both black and a woman, right? That then put up uh, sort of a compounding barriers, right, to them in, in particular instances, right? So the fact that they're a woman gives them a certain set of problems that men don't have. The fact that they're black gives them a certain set of problems that uh, that non-black individuals don't have. And then the fact that they are black and a woman, you know, the union of those two uh, also creates a whole new set of problems that are particular to that. And so that's basic. You know, I, I think I did a pretty good job there of stating the main core idea of intersectionality. My issue with intersectionality. I don't deny any of those claims individually. I don't deny the fact that uh, if someone is black, it's now again, these are all statistical claims. They're not necessarily true for any particular individual. Right. Right. Um, so you're making a, again, you're automatically making probabilistic arguments, but let's put that aside for a moment. Um, the fact that you're black does mean something, uh, particularly in an American context where we have a long history with our black population of treating them a certain way. Although I will point out that African immigrants to America tend to do better than the local black population, which tells you that it's not only about their skin color. Um, that being said, uh, I will acknowledge that being a woman means certain things. Uh, you know, and, and certain barriers and certain problems that may come along with it. Being a man does too, right? Depending on, again, this is all contextual, as you pointed out. Um, my big issue is that if we're actually going to try to, uh, well, for one, in what, what instance does it actually make sense to apply an intersectional analysis? I think often it's being applied in places where it doesn't make sense. And then two, you know, with the Impression Olympics kind of thing, right? I think there is some truth to that, which is that if we want to really get serious about all the ways in which any kind of, you know, uh, characterization of our identity could have affected us and given us an advantage or a disadvantage over someone else. Um, well, first of all, the, 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 the comparison that you're measuring to is a non-existent person, right? So who is the, uh, the, the most normative human being that is, uh, that is the standard by which we're comparing all other intersections? That doesn't exist. And then the other thing too is, when I look at my own life, and this is partly why I take such personal offense to it, I don't see uh, the intersectional discourse concerned at all with any of the uh, identity categories that, that, would, uh, that would be ascribed to me, except sort of the negative ones, which are that I'm white and a male and heterosexual, right? And so when I, when I I'm going to finish up here in a second. It's okay. I, you know, if I'm going to do an intersectional analysis of me, you could say, okay, the, the most obvious characteristics are you're white, you know, you're you're male, you identify as you know cis heteronormative, whatever, you know, whatever you want to you want to say. Okay, so those are all very surface level things that you could pretty much deduce from just looking at me or interacting with me. But then there are all these other aspects to me that are not going to be taken into account and largely aren't taken into account when these theories are used. So they're not taking into account the fact that uh, that I was born to teenage parents that I was born to a single mother, that, uh, that my parents never got married. They're not taking into account that I grew up uh, relatively poor. They're not taking into account the fact that uh, I have a particular genetic condition, which uh, predisposes me to certain health issues that uh, you know, nobody would know about unless I told you. Uh, they're not taking into account um, the fact that, again, as I told you earlier, that, uh, that, my, uh, that one of my parents is an immigrant, that uh, 
that I come from a Jewish background that has a whole nother, you know, history of oppression and, and, and hardship associated with it. That again, in my experience is not something that intersectionality wants to include in their accounting. And I don't think you can, I don't think ultimately you can account for all of those things and do a quantitative analysis of the degrees to which all of those individual facets. And again, you could just keep going on forever and ever about which, which things yeah. count and which things <clears throat> don't, you know, I'm not a particularly tall man. Okay. That has certain <laughs> right. disadvantages as we all know, if you're a taller guy, uh, there are other things like intelligence. If you're, in, if you're not very smart, you're at a disadvantage in this society. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, you know, we could go on and on uh, about about all of our particularities and all of our uniqueness and, and grievances that we may or may not have uh, related to them. And that's my biggest issue with the intersectionality. It's just sort of like, well, where does it end? Do we just go on at it yeah. infinitum? Uh, so you could feel free yeah. to respond to that. Yeah, I think I have two two main points. <clears throat> One is, you know, there might be an argument to be made that 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 intersectionality has continued to expand and include more and more um, letters, so to speak, like the LGBTQ, you know, whatever. It's like 15 letters long now, and people complain about this. But at the same time, it is attempting to make a broader, inclusive, deeper argument for some sort of intersectionality. Uh, if if you if you let it right if if you want it but but the other actually I have three points to make the other point is that it's a real tragedy and it's heartbreaking that social science ostensibly is trying to make the world a better place right all these subdisciplines that we talk about these are academics teaching and thinking together and rigorously writing you know obscure journal articles that nobody reads until it becomes a sensational issue. It's part of a broader enlightenment project, right? I think fundamentally, putting aside for a moment the critiques of enlightenment and uh, the, the renaissance of enlightenment uh, thinking and whatnot, there, there's a sort of striving in the right direction. Uh, and I'm, 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 I'm lamenting it with you because it's so impotent to actually affect the, the structural uh, problems of the world. And so, uh, I wanted to, I think, I think I covered those two points sufficiently. The third point is the Jewish thing, because I have strong opinions about Israel and I'm not Jewish, nor have I even been to Israel, <clears throat> but, but just as a, as a concerned academic, I'm happy to discuss it, discourse it. And so right off the top, right, there's, there, there's, there's Zionist and there's anti-Zionist Jews. So the term Jew by no means has a universal meaning, right? Well, and I mean, and this so, is, I mean, so, I mean, we could argue that it that it does, but with the question of, I mean, Israel I'm not, I'm not going to let you take that away. So, so here's the mm -hmm. thing. Uh, Jews have a particular history, which is that they, up until the foundation of the state of Israel as a Jewish state, uh, you know, basically post World War II, um, they were basically a sub uh, a subclass of citizens in all kinds of countries over the world, all over the world. And they were persecuted basically 100% of that time, more or less. I mean, there are a few instances of bright spots where they were, they were accepted in Poland, for example. Um, but by and large, uh, Jews, especially Ashkenazi Jews, which is, which is my type, so the Jews from Europe, which are most of the Jews in Israel, by the way, uh, were always, you know, they, they were doing pogroms, they were doing you know, they, they weren't allowed to own property. I mean, the, the history of Jewish oppression goes back way further 
than any of these uh, these these more uh, temp contemporary concerns about other racial injustices that are more salient to us today. For example, the problem of the the African American slave diaspora in the United States. Okay, Jewish Jewish struggle goes way back further than that, and yet it it, it seems to be discounted. I, I mean. To be honest, I don't really care to have too much of the discussion on Zionist versus anti-Zionist Jews. I, you know, the Jewish community is very split on that. And obviously, and there are, there are anti-Zionist Jews in Israel, right? All the left-wing parties in Israel are basically anti-Zionist and they're pro, they're pro-Palestine. Um, well, not all of them, but the, the far left ones. Um, and so I, I just don't see how that's really relevant to the conversation, uh, to be honest. And I don't have okay. a strong position to stake out on that. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'm just going to keep yeah. those thoughts to myself for now. Okay. Yeah. I'm, yeah, we don't have to go into it, but I am trying to make the case that it's relevant okay. and that, uh, that, that, uh, yeah, not to diminish the, the Jewish struggle or the historical antecedents, but um, yeah, much of the same can be said for oppression of various Arab groups uh, in that, in that region. And I would just say like, uh, you, you made a, you made a point that, I forget the word you used, but like that it, it I, what I wanted to say was that it's contentious, right? So you said it's, um, it, it's, it's not something, <clears throat> sorry, I'm blanking, but I just wanted to say like, it, it's a contentious issue. And I'm, I'm kind of comfortable leaning into that because there's parallels with it, with other, uh, issues of struggle. And of course, cosmopolitanism, it relates to that. And, and Cornel West's uh, resignation from, from Harvard in part was because of the institutional approach to, to uh, <clears throat> the Israel occupation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know. Uh, and, and um, what was I going to say? Yeah. Just, just a little factoid that I find interesting. I think it's 25% of American Jews are anti-Zionist. And I only bring this up to say that the, the, uh, in the discourse, that's not well known, that there's that high a level of anti-Zionist representation. So the, the Israel-Palestine case is interesting to me as a, as a case study, as, a, as an example of meta problems and paradoxes and how how the discourse gets entrenched, like like a, a couple of the most prominent figures on either side, you have like Alan Dershowitz on the right and Norman Finkelstein on the left. And I mean, they they couldn't be more different from each other. And they've they've engaged each other, you know, they've written about each other, they've debated, but it's always unsatisfactory because we have this lapsing back into conflict and to the status quo being maintained uh and at the end of the day i i think you know it, it's it's paradoxical but there's there's exit strategies that that are available if more people were kind of read into the same priming material the same introduction right so if the actually there was an intelligence squared debate from 2019 i think Mehdi hassan uh, me, uh, he participated in it. He wasn't mediating. And the, and the debate was this old chestnut, like is, is anti-Zionism anti-Semitic? <clears throat> and what was interesting about that debate, it's like a two hour debate, uh, was they do a before and after survey of the audience. And the before was 
more in favor of um, saying no, that anti-Zionism is not anti-Semitism, which, which is the typical conflation, right? The, the, the attacks on Jeremy Corbyn, I think were in large part just the, the conflation of his anti-Zionist position with instances of anti-Semitism that, that were occurring and some that weren't occurring. Um, and then, so in this debate, they voted before in favor of Mehdi Hassan's side. And then after the statistics were even more in favor. So they affirmed, the audience affirmed that the question itself is poorly phrased and that the two concepts are distinct and that we shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, buy into the right-wing narrative that, that merges them together. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, there, there, there's conflict right now in the region. Uh, and over the last few months, it's, it's flared up. And in the mainstream media, there's been a lot of talk of UFOs. So I kind of I kind of point to these types of emergences just as examples of of something I hope is a is a transpartisan issue that the you know the media is corrupt, it's corporate funded, it's interested in spin, uh, and it's interested in sensationalism, right? So discussing UFOs, whereas I believe there's no there there. There you can't you can't touch. Uh, Alien well, space. Okay, okay. <laughs> you know? we're getting a little bit off, off track. Yes, here. it's way off topic, but I, it's I, all. I, I think I know what you're pointing at that the UFOs are kind of a distraction. And mm -hmm. uh, there's all kinds of speculations about why they're choosing to release that information now rather than before and who's been hiding it and all that stuff. And uh, anyway, um, but I want to I get back to the, the point I was talking about, which is, uh, you know, I, I don't see, uh, I don't think that intersectionality can work as a, as a method. Of analysis, I don't think that it makes sense. Uh, I think that in particular studies, if you're doing a survey or if you're trying to run some crunch some numbers on a particular community, and you want to know based on a particular characteristic, like okay, uh, let's take a city block and see how many residents in this city block are of, let's say, you're in Canada, so let's say indigenous origin, right? And and then let's compare that to the non-indigenous groups that are living there, and uh, let's let's analyze their incomes. You know, I think that's all valid. Those are all valid, you know, sociological approaches. Uh, but I think it's important to realize that those are in the context of doing scientific research and that you also need to, you know, do other basic scientific uh, housekeeping, like control for, for different variables and, uh, you know, uh, <clears throat> uh, understand that, you know, whatever you're analyzing it based on, it has to do with the actual underlying, uh, you know, hypothesis. Uh, and I just... I don't know why that needs to be then extended to every area of, of life when it comes to hiring, when it comes to education, when it comes to all these other things. It yeah. scares me when I see people trying to do an intersectional approach, so say, for example, to the COVID relief bills or the infrastructure bills here in the United States. People are coming out of the woodwork and saying, I mean, not out of the woodwork, they're in positions of power, but they're coming out and saying, oh, when we do these these COVID relief funds or when we do these, this infrastructure bill, we need to make sure to have special clauses inserted for particular uh, disadvantaged groups, right? And uh, my thing for you is you pointed out, I think very early in the conversation that there's, you know, that, uh, and I don't think it's wrong to say that, you know, certain groups of people, particularly white people tend to be uncomfortable about these things. And I think it's reasonable for them to be uncomfortable about these things, because at the end of the day, when we're talking about things like who gets a job, or who gets money or who gets a loan, those are zero sum things. One person is going to get it and someone else is not going to get it. And if we're using as a criteria, your skin color or your 
ethnic background, then that means that by, by implication, that particular policy is disadvantaging me, right? It's disadvantaging my yeah. group in favor of someone else. So how do you, how do you square that? I mean, you yeah, yourself that's... aren't the beneficiary of any of these kinds of programs, right? Correct. Correct. I think the way I square it, I kind of touched on touched on it before. I think that that, uh, but I'll but I'll try to I'll try to unpack it further. I articulate both a non-zero sum form of analysis first and foremost, so we under we can understand the world in 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 many ways as as non-zero sum. Of course, within that there is various types of hard scarcity. <clears throat> that we have to contend with. Um, however, uh, I also have a, a non-zero sum approach to the, the potential of politics. So I'm, I'm making a distinction because my non-zero my non-zero approach is a, is a worldview first, but also what I think is a practical political program, right? That would ameliorate a lot of these these inequalities without foregrounding the the aspect of it that we're that that we're talking about the race for example so for example ubi or a jobs guarantee and there's a big difference between the two but i actually advocate for both of them these are universalist policies that for obvious reasons are hard to get past they're okay, they, so this is, they this challenge is capital right mm -hmm. but they will address implicitly and structurally a lot of the actual disparity as well as the perceived disparity mm -hmm. and so you know the bernie campaign campaigns again was derailed both by you know trumpism and 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 uh, whatever the conservatives were going through and the the uh, centrist establishment democratic uh, democratic governance model and so it's just so tragic and ironic because I really believe that those policies, and, and they were extremely popular. There's you know things like Medicare for all, again, universal healthcare is going to address all of those other things. And so I'm staunchly opposed to the kind of tweaking of the system and the woke washing and all this, just to you know performatively strive for marginal improvements. Oh, we have more you know, rainbow coalition in our, in our oil company office. Yeah. You know? Our, our like, boardroom is diverse. Yeah. It's such, it's such bullshit. But however, this is always why I want to like still say, yeah, to an extent you're right. This is why you should help the left project to, to build solidarity for these structural changes. And that's, yeah. that's why a lot of my work is like, not so political. It's like, you know, here's some, conceptual stuff about systems change and you know hegemony and and uh you know technology and then you know here's some culture war stuff uh, you know they're they're connected but it's it's different to get people to uh to look at the big picture and to and to see to not only to see but to agree and to foster consensus building mutual understanding mm -hmm. so we can we can at the end of the day like people can identify politically however they want but they have to have a have collective action they have to act in a concerted way which means sometimes like everybody just vote for bernie vote for the vote for the old cranky socialist and let, let's see what happens because a lot of leftists did say bernie wasn't enough 
it's a start, a starting point. Right. But, but um, you know, I remember through, through experience and also vicariously the uh, what the vice documentary called the Bernie blackout, you know, just how my, how little media coverage there was. And just on a person to person level, how hard it was to, to raise political questions or to, you know, try, try to, uh, to, um, so, you know, um, canvas or solicit or get people on board with the project mm-hmm. without seeming like a, like, um, an evangelist, right? Cause I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not a big fan of evangelism, uh, personally. And I, I'm, I'm especially kind of allergic to doing it. Like, Hey, I'm going to knock on your door and befriend you. And let's talk about Bernie Sanders. It's gotta be done, but it's not, it's not my job, so to speak. Nevertheless, some of the intellectual spaces I'm, I'm in and have been in, I expect people who identify as intellectual and grappling with, with uh, paradigm shift type stuff to be willing to discuss their politics uh, head on, head on. And in, instead, what happens is a lot of people have um, kind of obstructed that inquiry with a both sides ism fallacy right? Where they say, oh, I don't know, both sides are, you know, kind of corrupt and, you know, we need something new. We need something novel. And, um, you know, it's just so obvious to me that there's three sides. There's an alternative to the both sides, which is a, which is a very fraught and culture, you know, uh, historically oppressed socialist movement for, uh, you know, all, all the convergence of all these types of uh, justices that we're trying to achieve. So obviously the term social justice is very mainstream for better or worse, <clears throat> but on a deeper level, I'm interested in the concept of epistemic justice, but not in a like, let's endlessly, you know, um, produce scholarship scholarship on it. Let's extract the the core principle of epistemic justice, the core observations and the core sort of prescriptions, which are, look, there's massive knowledge gaps, knowledge inequality in society. And that is one of the factors of, of broader inequality, wealth inequality. And again, that's not to say like, oh, just give small business owners more business training no, because I believe we really need a, a paradigm shift that includes <clears throat> global healthcare, global education, that is not globalist, but that is some in some ways universal, universalizable and free at the point of service. And so this is why it comes back to the, the non-zero-sum methods of analysis and the non-zero-sum methods of politics, because modern monetary, for example, modern monetary theory is an increasingly popular approach to macroeconomics that stipulates that we actually have the functional ability um, for sovereign states to print as much money as is needed to uh, to materialize these these large scale programs like a Green New Deal or Medicare for All, and people can only see that if they have the kind of non zero sum theory. All right. You lost me there. Okay. Um, so a few things. One, I definitely agree with you. You know, people here, you hear this line a lot about, um, uh, about economic inequality, like, oh, uh, poor people have smartphones, so they should just figure it out, you know, right. and 
again, I, I agree that uh, just giving people access to knowledge, as we know, is not necessarily a panacea for all their all their particular structural, economic, psychological, whatever problems it might be. And you have to actually give people structure. You have to actually give people real opportunities, concrete uh, interventions uh, that uh, you know will change their lives in a material in a material sense. Um, I liked so so you lost me at the end there, and I know you're an advocate of MMT, um, but I will give you some. Uh, I want to give you props for what you said earlier about your policies surrounding universal healthcare and UBI. Um, I myself don't necessarily think that those are going to be good solutions, depending on the context. Uh, there are countries that have universal healthcare schemes that seem to work out pretty well. I think in the United States, for example, we have legacy programs and a scale issue by the sheer size of the United States that uh, precludes some of those things from happening, at least without massive amounts of structural barriers and red tape and things like that being removed first. Um, that being said, I do think that this is a point where the left and the right can actually come to some agreement uh, and where I think, uh, ironically, you might find some allies with some of the uh, conservative nationalists who wouldn't necessarily be opposed to implementing some of these programs uh, or jobs programs, for example, uh, you know, here as well. Um, and so I just wanted to throw that out uh, as a little bone for you to think about is that uh, when I think when I think about uh, so I, I tend to call it um, the uh, the the realignment. I called this the great realignment starting in the beginning of the pandemic, which basically was just my catch all term for the ways in which the right and the left uh, sort of the dissident spheres of the dissident right and the dissident left were actually starting to find some commonalities and starting to work against sort of the, the mainstream system, which seemed to be opposed to both. Uh, now, this is not the same thing as horseshoe theory. This is not both sidesism. This is not saying that, uh, you know, once you go too far to the right, you end up, you know, too far on the left, or once you go too far on the left, you end up on the right. Uh, it's none of that. It's just saying that there are some common positions uh, with respect to, let's say, uh, you know, helping the poor or populist, again, policies that, uh, you know, could be implemented. And you might actually find some agreement on the other side there. Um, yeah, so that's <clears throat> yeah. that's important. And then my last thing, the last thing I want to say is um, with regard to the MMT. Uh, so I'm very anti Keynesian. Uh, I don't believe Keynesian economic works. I think it creates a lot of perversions for our society. I think we're already seeing with the current inflation levels that the United States is seeing right now. It's not going to be transitory and that you can't just print money uh, to solve your problems and have no uh, have no you know, ongoing side effects. Um, and uh, that's partly why I'm a big proponent of, of, of Bitcoin, although I'm not a I'm not a I'm not like a, 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 a diehard Bitcoin guy. you know partisan. I don't think Bitcoin is going to solve all the world's problems, but I do think that having a hard currency that is uh, that is has scarcity built into it and uh, doesn't allow what you were talking about, which is sort of just printing to solve our problems, is actually very yeah. important. So we have a yeah. we have a bit of an economic disagreement there, but I don't think. We need to get into that for the moment. I think we can just leave that as a um, something yeah. for the listeners to to work out for themselves, um, because neither of us are uh, very you know very economically oriented. Um, but I, I will let you respond to that, and then I have a few more Perfect. things to say, and we can we can wrap this up. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. I've got some economics training right within within the broader context of my sort of transdisciplinary 
Um, uh, but what's part of what's interesting to me is that like, obviously in the economics classes I took and in other classes I took, there was a lot that you're not taught, right? And for good reason, right? There's just too much out there. Truth is that, or it is spoken sometimes, but university is not actually like the stereotype a lot of people painted as where you're just indoctrinated with, you know, progressive. You're, at least in my experience, I was just trained to think critically. I wasn't given the answers to anything. And in many cases, there is no conclusions to the debates and you need to just sort of hold them tentatively and work with it. So coming back to economics, you know, the MMT guys make a very compelling case for a paradigm shift in economics. And they find kind of, um, kind of you know, points, points of origin in the history of economics in some cases going back to uh, you know St. Francis to make their paradigm shift argument. And I'm interested in the paradigm shift arguments across all subfields. And, and there's quite a lot, right? And they're quite, they're quite independent of each other. So that's what attracts me to it. And also I'd, I'd push back a little bit against the scale argument, like saying it's just not possible. It would just be very difficult to, because it's, because the, the United States would have to go through a period of transition where they're actively building the infrastructure that doesn't exist. So of course there is a scaling problem, but by the same token, like some of the data I've seen for China is like their COVID and I don't know what it currently is, but at least from the beginning, their COVID infection rates were very low and it was contained. I think they, let's just, if I was to throw a number out there, I'd say I saw like, oh, 10,000 deaths, right? In the first six months. You look at the United States, it's like 200,000. You don't trust that data, do you? Well, I, let's say I don't trust it completely. I don't, I don't buy anything hook, line and sinker, but some of, sometimes if the data is coming from a relatively uh, non-partisan source, like the w, uh, WHO, for example, I have to at least hold it tentatively again, right? Not not be overly skeptical. But my point is just to say, if it's true, that they were able to implement relatively totalitarian measures, but to, to crack down quickly on what is an authentic uh, public health crisis. And so the United States could have been equipped and could, you know, and, you know, it's so it's so uh, awkward and tragic because it, it emerged right at the end of the primary, or at least when the primary was just ramping up to Super Tuesday, right? It's like the worst possible time for this to happen. And and had Bernie's campaign so been a bit tighter, you know, uh, and 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 it was gaining steam, but but um, you know it had a very tenuous hold. Then you know. Uh, you know, Bernie having a universal health care plan that he intended to, you know, implement effective immediately, essentially. Uh, for me, there's not much room for debate whether that's the right course of action and whether it's going to work, because it's really just officiating something that has to happen. Like, you know, human rights uh, encode that access to health care. And it's because we, we don't have time to dive into this rabbit hole, but 
you know, I think the United States, as we agree, it's got a unique sort of special history. It's sort of built on a conspiracy against itself in various ways. So, so we have all these un, all all these um, institutions that are dysfunctional and people who are left out of the system, and a sort of like, you know, a tug of war uh, over over history that, in effect you know, produces just very incremental gains in some areas and in large, large ways like uh, regression. And so again, this is, we're kind of stuck in history and I'm advocating for an intellect, intellectual dash political kind of paradigm shift that, that takes a break, a break away from that. And, and that necessarily has to be some sort of broad coalition as, as, Historically, uh, a lot of these movements have been coalitions, but <clears throat> in many cases, uh, driven by left politics. But it, it has to be a coalition without being some sort of appeasement or capitulation to a lot of the far right ideas. And then and, and the final point on that, because you mentioned populism a bunch too, and where my mind goes immediately is to Steve Bannon as a, <clears throat> as a right-wing populist, as, as one of the most prominent right-wing politicians populists because that's the term he uses right and and in my view this has been thoroughly debunked on the, on the on the left right that that is to say steve bannon uses that rhetoric but whether he believes it or not um it, it, it's it's an open question but certainly in terms of his politics and his policies it does not help poor people Trumpism, Bannon's economic populism does not help poor people. It's not designed to rectify or alleviate any of that structural inequality. And that's the lie. That's the lie that um, because of the, the, the persuasion of the, of the rhetoric, you know, we get stuck in this, this media space that gives credence to the bad actors, right? So you, there was a debate between Steve Bannon and David Frum mm. as, as like a kind of good conservative versus bad conservative kind of, kind of uh, juxtaposition. But the, the crazy thing about that is like, like from a left perspective, they're both kind of wrong, you know? <clears throat> David Frum wrote the Axis of Evil speech, you know, and was pro-Iraq war. So like it, they're both just using abstraction to kind of you know further the status quo and to kind of go through the motions of a debate, but it's it's very far from a from a, 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 a resolution in any sense. And then of course there's left wing populism. I think one of the best examples of success is Brazilian President Lula da Silva. So I'm I'm not an expert, but just from what's been covered from a journalistic point of view is is he had both good domestic socialist policies uh, policies that lifted 20 million people out of poverty which is not nothing in brazil and he had a good let's say cosmopolitan internationalist politics like i think he was instrumental in negotiating the iran deal or or something like that so yeah, I, I mean, I hope you agree that the the comparisons of left and right populism at minimum well, are apples and oranges. And well, that I, no, I mean, I, I think I think what you said there was basically that you just don't believe in right wing populism as a as a as a genuine movement, right? 
and uh, you know, I, I I would have to disagree. I have to give them uh, some credit in that there are there have to be some right wing populists who are genuinely interested in raising the living standards of of uh, of the poor and the downtrodden. Whether I think primarily the disagreement is how you do that. I think it, we can say that it's possible to have the same goals and to disagree that one's approach is going to work versus another. And I think that's the core issue is that you think that their approach wouldn't work and would be counterproductive to the stated goals. And therefore it's hard for you to believe it. And someone like, like myself uh, would say that, uh, you know, the socialist approach, let's just say, uh, you know, wouldn't work and would ultimately be counterproductive. And so it's hard for me to believe it. Right. But if we just sit around accusing each other of being liars, well, then we're definitely not getting anywhere. And so, um, you know, I'm, I, I'm yeah. happy to, 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 to speculate about, you know, who, who may or may not be a good faith actor on the world stage. I think when it comes to, for example, actually getting your policy implemented, um, we know, for example, that there were lots of policies that Trump wanted to do that he was unable to do because of the inside pressure of the people that were around him and because of corporations and other, you know, institutional interests who basically said, no, 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 you think this is your game. This is not your game. This is our game. We're going to do things this way. And that's part of the reason why, as we've talked about at length in this conversation, when you talked about some of the Democratic figures who promised to change things like Obama or even Bernie, they've also been unsuccessful at implementing some of their agendas, maybe in some cases because they didn't actually want that. But in a lot of cases, because, you know, there were other factors at play and there were other people who were already there, you know, in D.C., in these institutions of power who basically have their foot on the scale and are saying, no, 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 you don't understand how things are done. This yeah. is how we do things here. Uh, you know, get with the program. Um, and so, you know, that's a whole level, of, you know, institutional corruption and, and regulatory capture and things like that, that uh, we, we could say for another day. Um, <laughs> that, that being said, <laughs> uh, I have one last question for you. And I, I hope that we've covered some some ground. And I do believe that we've made at least some progress in better understanding our different perspectives today. I think I have learned from you about, um, you know, your your sociological in particular sociological leanings and training, I think informs a lot of your your view. And I've been able to see from our conversation today that you're not really an ideologue, even though you are committed to leftist causes. Um, but that you're capable of engaging and you're capable of receiving arguments from the other side so long as they're made, uh, you know, in good faith. And I think I've done a good job of presenting to you my perspective and my various disagreements that I had with, uh, you know, in particular, these sort of academic theories that were kind of the, the pretext for this, for this show today. Um, and so I'm hoping that those of you who've listened to the full conversation this far, I know we've been going a while, uh, are, are going to get something out of this, regardless of what side of the political spectrum you're on. That being said, uh, let's go ahead and get this wrapped up. So I've got one more question for you, Brent, uh, before uh, we sort of uh, sign off. And that is going to be, what is your metamodern vision for the future? <laughs> okay, so metamodernism, you know, is, 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 is attempting something that's uh, that's big. And that's kind of why I like it. And that's why I, I had you on, you know, I think one of the things that you and I both agree with is that this incrementalism that we've been sort of, uh, a, a falling asleep under for the last, you know, 50, 50 odd years, however long you want to trace it back, 
uh, is really stopping people from all sides from dreaming big and having big visions for the future and wanting to implement big change because we're all we've all been sort of convinced of this lie that things can only be done in a sort of step by step small change way where you sort of just tweak things and hope for the best. Uh, I think that's toxic. I think it's causing us to not actually, you know, consider real radical alternatives. And so that's one of the things that you and I both have in common. So what is your metamodern vision of the future? If you could wave a magic wand and turn things how you wanted, what, what might some yeah. of that look like? <clears throat> it's, a it's a great question. And I appreciate the setup and, and just a quick segue to say like, you know, the game B thing obviously has some of these normative traits in common. It wants a big picture kind of paradigm shift. And I've, I've embraced the good parts and I've been really critical of what I see as the hypocritical parts and the, the bad parts. <clears throat> um, so, uh, and yeah, it's a, what, you know, what is metamodernism to, to the novice? It's a big question, but I, I think I have an answer uh, that, that, that can fit, which is to say, and look, I think this is realistic. It, it's, it's a tough sell, but I think it, and it's a very complex thing, but I think it'll be increasingly self-evident that the, the course of the planet and politically we're running out of alternatives. So, so the top line is demilitarization, right? So, and there's a lot of interesting arguments to back up what I'm going to say, but basically invert the military industrial complex into a peace industrial complex, which means undermining a lot of the assumptions about politics and about discourse and education um, that, that per just perpetuate the militarist culture, even if we're not that engaged with it or seduced by it, right? There's, there's uh, war-based video games and movies. It's still a major kind of trope of our entertainment complex, which is part of it too. So the way, the way I map the military industrial complex is also like up to like 12 kind of extensions, right? Where you have big pharma, big oil, big agro, media, sports, entertainment, like pharma, it's all interconnected. And the scholarship on this stuff has evolved. But, but there's, a, there's some pretty good meta theories coming from different places. One of those places is Strauka Institute. But there, there's a guy, independent, I guess, I don't know where he's from, but I think his name's Ackerbane, has this idea of a peace industrial complex. And I really like it because it, it, you know, it's not just a strict anti-capitalist, anti-war position, but it says, look, we have this infrastructure. We have this kind of... You even have a lot of military people that are in that are that are sympathetic involved with it. For example, Mark Milley, the general, had that had that uh, clip go viral about defending CRT. That's a really interesting clip if you haven't seen it. And also, I listened to a podcast recently that was a couple soldiers, a couple veterans, who were basically anti-militarist and so they didn't have the answers but i think they're they, they would dovetail with what i'm proposing right and so this is consistent with the green new deal with with all extant existing peace initiatives uh and the pentagon itself recognizes that climate change is the the number one threat right that it's not terrorism whether domestic or foreign it's it's climate change and so <clears throat> 
you know, we're running out of time. That's why the election cycle was so important. And I, I, I deeply politicized my metamodern approach uh, to say like, look, this is it guys. Like this is the sort of Overton window of opportunity. We should, we should jump through it. And, and that didn't happen. And so in many ways we're in the kind of darkest timeline, but I, I still, I still don't see any alternatives. The only question is like, how are we going to get people on board with what I just proposed, which I think is self-evident and what's the time horizon of it. Now this is going to freak people out, but I think, I think uh, we need to do a lot of this by 2030. <laughs> right. And, and I feel like we're five years behind schedule just in terms of how we talk about it. <clears throat> and maybe I'll just close out with a little self-promotion because I've, you know, I, I haven't, done any kind of metamodern lectures or anything yet. I've, I've talked about it. I've written a bunch of articles about it. And I'm published in a, a recent uh, new book from Perspectiva. Uh, I have a chapter in the book. It's an edited volume. And my chapter is about metanoia, the kind of concept of uh, 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 fundamental conversion, uh, change of mind, heart, past, present, future, and, and uh, so that's my kind of most recent contribution to this field, which is, I hope it's a, it helps people perceive some sort of agency that they have, you know, because metanoia is something that you let happen to you, but it's also something you have to initiate and pursue and commit to, uh, and not necessarily knowing what, what you're going to turn into on the other side, but at, at you know, at minimum, just trying to become a better person. And, uh, you know, guilt and shame and repentance are part of the conceptual makeup of that term so that we can, we can uh, really just, um, you know, self-diagnose what, what the causes of our ideologies and hangups are and, and sort of convert out of it. So, I hope that's uh, that's a sufficient answer to that question. Well, thank you so much for uh, for coming on. Uh, it was a, a pleasure getting into it uh, with you today. And, uh, you know, as I'm sure everyone could tell who's uh, been listening this far in that we could just keep going on and on and on for hours and hours if we really wanted to. Um, but we do have other things to get to. And uh, you're busy with your institute and, uh, you know, I'm busy uh, doing this as well as some other things. So thank you so much, Brent. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'll see you next time. I'll see you on Twitter. Yeah, thank you. And I enjoyed it and I enjoyed the challenge. So let's let's keep it up. Cool.